This path will lead you to an unholy place, a cemetery. Hello everybody, Foggy Jack here, the Lost Boy, Oddball of Magic, and the host of the Foggy Jack 13 Podcast. I'll meet you down in the pumpkin patch where the haunters meet the haunted. One moment, John Lear. Before I get to John, and we have in uh, radio the luxury of a lot of time, John is uh, on the line and able to hear what I'm saying right now. And I guess I'm going to begin this show uh, with my experience, so it's out of the way. And I'm going to relate this experience to you because it really, in some ways, accounts for why John is here on this particular morning. Because when I saw what I saw this last Sunday, I picked up the phone uh, the moment I hit the house and called John Lear's house. Unfortunately, at that point, got a tape and uh, related briefly my experience. And uh, John called me the next day, and uh, we, I, I, it was like a, a confession or something. <laughs> I had to get old of John. So here's what happened briefly this last Sunday. And I will neither, uh, if I'm able, add, add to it or detract from it. I'm going to tell you the story just as it happened. On my way home to a little town to the west of Las Vegas, about 60 miles to the west, uh, called Pahrump, Nevada. And I was about a mile from home and uh, on a street that runs from east or uh, east-west, and I was traveling east to west uh, to intersect with a street that runs north-south and would take me on the final leg home. It was uh, about uh, 11... It was between 11 and 11.30. I'm sorry I didn't really note the time that carefully, but somewhere in that uh, window between 11 and 11.30, I should suspect about 11.15 or 20 would be my best guess. And I was on this uh, final street, and all of a sudden, uh, you'll recall, the, the moon was a bit fuller than it is now, so it was fairly well lit up. The uh, weather conditions were calm, uh, if there was a breeze, it was a very, very light breeze, uh, as to be insignificant. My wife uh, caught something, I guess, out of the corner of her eye and turned around, looked out the back window and said, What in the hell is that? I said, I don't know. And I stopped the car and uh, I turned off uh, the headlights and uh, rolled down my window. And coming up from behind us, just off the driver's side, was something large. I would guesstimate it would be a hundred feet across. Absolutely triangular. And I would guess it to be at about 150 feet uh, in altitude. And it was coming up literally behind us. Its uh, direction of travel was roughly uh, east-southeast and traveling towards the uh, west-northwest. And it was lit. There were two white lights and one strobing red light, strobing at a rate uh, faster than you would associate with uh, normal uh, aviation traffic. 
The object was moving very slowly. The word I would use to describe its movement was more floating. Uh, certainly it was going um, at, a, at a rate that would not sustain conventional aircraft in flight. There just wouldn't be enough lift at that speed. So it was floating, and it literally floated uh, right across the, or very nearly across the top of my car, just a little off to the driver's side. And I'll tell you, the sky was lit well enough that when I looked up at it, I was able to discern the substance of it. And it was black and solid and triangular. And it moved uh, out and uh, across uh, uh, my area very slowly, floated out across and continued to float in a west-northwesterly direction until uh, I could see it uh, literally going across uh, the entire valley, and uh, I was able to keep sight of it uh, for, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe as much as four, four, three or four minutes, somewhere in there, and then I finally lost sight of it. So I have absolutely no idea what I saw, except that it was large. It was precisely as I described to you. It wasn't a guess. It was not an indistinct light. This was, without question, a craft. The question is, was it a craft that uh, our military has that we don't know that they have or was it from someplace else I don't know I would suspect the first before the second but certainly either one is possible so that was my experience I'm 48 years old I've never seen one of these things before I didn't think I ever would see one but I did my wife uh, was witness as well I actually put her on the air uh, the other morning for about 30 seconds just because I didn't want to be out there twisting slowly in the breeze by myself. And I'm still thinking about all this. So there it is. For what it is, for what it's worth, that's my story, and I swear to you, it is true. John Lear. John Lear is an airline captain. John has flown 160 different types of aircraft in over 50 different countries in all types of flying. Experimental test flying, production test flying, airline passenger flying, cargo hauling, movie work, stunt flying, aircraft ferrying, airdropping missions, racing, and secret missions of all kinds. Lear held 18 world speed records in the Learjet including speed around the world, and holds the most FAA airman certificates issued to a single individual, which include the airline transport rating, flight instructor, ground instructor, navigator, flight engineer, flight dispatcher, airframe, and power plant mechanic, control tower operator, and parachute rigger. He's been a commercial pilot for 30 years and has been flying for 35 he holds the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Award for Outstanding Airmanship, presented in 1968. He's flown missions worldwide for various government agencies, flew in Southeast Asia between 1967 and 73, and has flown extensively in Europe, the Middle East, Afghanistan, the Far East, and Africa. As a non-sked pilot, he has over 16,000 hours of flight time, of which over 12,000 hours are in jets. Lear's father, of course, was William P. Lear, Sr., who not only helped develop the first car radio, the A-Track uh, stereo, the automatic pilot for fighter aircraft, but who developed the Learjet, 
one of the first and most successful of all business jet aircraft. Lear studied industrial design at the Art Center College in Los Angeles and was a state senate candidate in Nevada, 1980. He's written extensively about airplanes and other subjects and was Middle East correspondent for Combat Illustrated between 1975 and 1977 while stationed in Beirut. He is an amateur photographer and astronomer and has won several photography awards for pictures taken during his worldwide travels. In the early 70s, Lear owned and skippered the 12-meter America's Cup boat soliloquy out of Marina del Rey. Lear's interest in UFOs began after reading Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time, and then a chance encounter with U.S. Air Force pilot who was at a base in England where an extraterrestrial craft landed in December of 1980. Ladies and gentlemen, John Lear. Good morning, John. All right, how you doing? Good to have you back. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know where to start, John, except I'm sure you were listening and heard what I had to say. That is exactly as my experience occurred. I never thought I'd uh, have one, John. No. And it's still... Uh, it's, it's, I've been very thoughtful about it ever since. The audience has helped because they've kept talking about it. But uh, it's just preying on my mind. Any idea... What I saw? Well, uh, if I had to guess, uh, based on all the stories I've heard, I would say that it's uh, uh, a, an A-12 Avenger. Okay, one other fact, John, that I did leave out, and that was that uh, it was very still. I've said on the air you could hear a cricket a quarter mile away, and that was the case. It was very quiet, and as close as this doggone thing was to me, uh, John, it did not make a sound no not a sound i mean what what kind of a12 avenger what is that you have some uh, very very quiet airplanes and like i say i'm not saying what it was just what i think it was uh the a12 avenger is the airplane that was canceled uh it was the navy uh, uh fighter bomber that was canceled oh about a year ago uh by the pentagon because of cost overruns it was uh being built by uh, General Dynamics and McDonnell Douglas. And what happened is when uh, the funds were withdrawn for this thing, unbeknownst to the public and everybody else, there was about 10 to 13 of this craft already in various stages of construction, hmm. uh, most of them already built. So when they withdrew the funds uh, to this uh, craft, they uh, asked Lockheed to uh, get it in the air. And they took these, uh, it was about 10 to 13 airplanes, and uh, uh, worked on them. What they had to do is these were Navy airplanes uh, ostensibly for a carrier, and they had to, one of the over, uh, overweight mechanisms was the wing folding mechanism and uh, <clears throat> some other things in it, and uh, put engines in them and started flying it. And they're extremely, extremely quiet. Um, and they're the ones that are flying around. Now, one of the reasons why I say this is, is because if it had been anything strange, like something extraterrestrial, uh, it's possible that it would have uh, uh, canceled your or put out your headlights or your engine or something like that, uh, which is usually the way. Also, there wouldn't have been the white lights uh, on it, possibly the red light, but I don't know if anybody has seen uh, a saucer with a uh, flashing red light, no matter what. Okay, one, other, one other aspect it had, John, was it was flying too slow to be sustained in flight 
aerodynamically as I understand it. Uh, I mean, it was, John, it was floating. Yeah. Yeah, now that's the one thing, because uh, the uh, conventional craft do need lift, and uh, although the the uh, Delta plan form does create quite a bit of lift, uh, it does need a little bit of speed. So uh, I, you know, since I wasn't there and I don't know, sure, uh, you sure. know, I didn't see it. I'm not sure what it was, but it sure sounds like these uh, A-12 Avengers. You know, one of the things they do, and I say they, is is uh, we, the public, don't to get to know all those secrets. So. Uh, one of the things they do is they play little tricks on us. They they find out what what we're doing, what the important people are doing, what Art Bell is doing on Sunday night, and <laughs> and fly out and and intercept him and fly over him and and uh, get him to say that he saw an extraterrestrial craft. And then oh, oh no, but Art Bell's not said that. And then when they're in the briefing room, they say, Hey man, guess what? Art Bell says he saw you yeah. saw me uh, flying. I guess I'm an alien, huh? And, yeah. and that's their little joke that they play on on the public. So I'm not saying that. Hey, Happen, but that's the little things that they like to do. John, my guess would have to be, I said it uh, earlier in the week, if somebody pressed me against the wall and said, we want your best guess and out with it now or we're punching you, I'd have had to say I thought that it might be some sort of military secret aircraft. Uh, that is my first guess. And there was nothing about it that would suggest, uh, except that it's like it performed as nothing, John, I've, I've ever seen or that I've understood on Earth could fly in the air too slow, too quiet, too close. It was so close. That was the thing about it, John. I could see all the substance of it. Not details, no windows, no markings, nothing like that. But I saw the black craft come over. You know, it was dark black, and the sky was lighter because it was near a full moon. Oh. Uh, well, that's one thing that doesn't make uh, sense is they don't like to fly those things on uh, any night when there's a, 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 any kind of a moon because it does let people see what they are. Uh, also, uh, the engines that we have, even though our technology base is about 30 years ahead of uh, where the public thinks it is, uh, we're kind of strapped to uh, uh, turbine and, and fan jet engines, and they do make some sound. So being at that low... Uh, and that close, it would seem that they would make a noise. But it's just, I'm going to, I'm going to have to stick with uh, uh, that. It that it's a craft of ours. There's a lot of things they they have. There's probably five or six airplanes that they have that the public doesn't know anything about. For instance, the F-19, uh, which was built right along on the same assembly line as the F-117A, has been flying around for almost uh, 12 years now. Uh, it's a Navy uh, fighter. Uh, with a delta wing plan form, a uh, very, very strange-looking aircraft, and the public doesn't know anything about that. Frankly, John, I had not heard that many reports of triangular UFOs. I thought mine was unique, and I came on the air and reported it, and all of a sudden people started sending me newspaper articles and reports of triangular objects sighted up in the state of Washington, and on and on and on. My fax machine lit up. And uh, so apparently there have been, and, and so did my telephone. So there have been quite a few sightings of that sort. Uh, and you would attribute most of them, do you think, John, to uh, experimental U.S. aircraft? No, some of them. Some of them. Some of them. Are there any uh, substantial reports that you know of, John, uh, of alien craft or, or craft that appear to be alien uh, that were triangular? No, not that I've heard. They're mostly uh, the flying wing type, huge flying wings, or circular crab. But I haven't heard too much of the uh, the triangular type being what we uh, uh, 
what we think of as extraterrestrial. All right, there was a uh, program on Fox last night that I fortunately know that you saw because I called you. And uh, as a matter of fact, my boss called me and said, hey, it's on. I switched over and I caught it. And the whole cast of characters was there. Linda Howe, she's on my Sunday Area 2000 show. George Knapp, same deal. Stanton Friedman, I noticed. Uh, Bob Lazar. Uh, there was a picture there of S12 that was attributed to you. Um, uh, so the whole cast of characters, Bud Hopkins, and on and on and on, all of them were on. It was an excellent show. What did you think of it? I thought it was uh, very interesting. It's about two or three years old. And I remember when Sightings did that program. It was one of their first ones. Uh, they did do the interview with uh, Bob Lazar, which was uh, very interesting. And, of course, George Knapp and Linda Howe were on there. Uh, you know, George, when I first went on George Knapp's uh, program on the record in 1987, you know, he, I clearly remember him, uh, very, very skeptical. You know, geez, John, you know, it's kind of hard to believe, you know, extraterrestrial craft at the test site. And yeah. after a couple of years, he went, you know, got pretty involved in the research and then did those very, uh, very well done uh, um, best evidence programs show. that he did the UFO uh, best, best evidence and and now he's out on the road he does almost every uh, UFO uh, lecture on the on the uh, on the lecture beat that uh, that there is right and uh, he doesn't it seems as though he remembers you know himself uh, initiating the investigation investigation into UFOs but he doesn't remember that uh, you know that I was on his program and I you know originally started not that i care one way or the other but it would be nice for him to say once in a while you know uh, john lear was the one that uh, to, that uh, originally piqued my interest and did the initial investigation on them. oh john i would say you are the great granddaddy of researchers in the ufo field well, there was a lot of people before me but uh, as far as george nab is concerned it would be nice for once in a while for him to say you know uh, john lear was the well he may john you know, what he may feel is you know he was a um, uh, a mainline sort of journalist, and he may feel that he was one of the first mainline journalists to really turn his head to this whole affair, and that may be fair to say. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the other thing that I found significant that he said was that he investigated uh, the mob, you know, here in Las Vegas for years and years and years, and um, the um, the fear associated with investigating the mob, according to him, was almost nothing compared to the fear generated by uh, the investigation of uh, this UFO phenomenon. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably true. You you concur with that, huh? Uh, yes. I never investigated the mob, but uh, I knew uh, Ned Day very well, and he's the one that uh, that gave George most of his contacts. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure that would be so. Um, but nevertheless, that's quite a statement to make that the fear associated with this ultimately is uh, even bigger than the fear associated with investigating the mob. John, uh, we're going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour, and uh, we'll come back and get into all of this uh, a, little, a little deeper. Stay right where you are. Great, okay. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM from Las Vegas. My guest is John Lear, subject UFOs. More in a moment. disturbs you, by all means, take a hike, turn your radio off, and come back another day. And this does disturb uh, and upset some people. It's a very sensitive topic. It's about UFOs, unidentified flying objects, or as some people call them, 
uh, identified flying objects, and I think John is one of those. Um, I just had an interesting call. John, um, I just had a call off the air from a source that I trust who said, Art, um, Area 22, and I don't have any idea what that is, and the old uh, Area uh, S4 or the area up uh, uh, right up around S4 or above S4 is now occupied by the Navy. Well, it was always occupied by the Navy. As a matter of fact, that's where uh, Lazar's checks came from, was Department of Naval Intelligence. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Navy has always been ahead of uh, all of these projects. They've just used the U.S. Air Force as the whipping boy. Uh, when the Air Force recovered the, uh, the saucers of the first ones in 1947, uh, in fact, um, uh, Admiral Hillencotter uh, was appointed head of MJ-12, and the Navy took control of the whole program and always have been in charge of this program. Uh, they were head of uh, both what is, is known old as, as Area 51, referred to as the Box, and S-4, which is, just, is near Papoose Lake, uh, in charge of that. All right. John, we have um, many new affiliate uh, radio stations here on the network since you've uh, last been on. So a lot of people really don't know a whole lot about you one way or the other. I read your bio at the beginning, but uh, they don't know a whole lot about you, and there is quite a story. Um, so briefly, John, um, I I'll tell you, as I saw this thing, when I saw this thing last Sunday, I had a full day to think about whether I really wanted to come on the air and talk about it or not, and I went back and forth uh, arguing with myself uh, during that period, trying to decide whether I would publicly admit this, and um, I, I'm still not fully certain I did the right thing, because I've taken some heat uh, because of it, John, uh, so then this is what I'm relating to your decision working for uh, a commercial airline company, coming out publicly with all of this UFO business. You might give my audience a little history about what happened when you did that. Well, I got interested in um, uh, UFOs, so to speak. Uh, I, I kind of had a little bit of interest because my dad was um, uh, used to talk about it quite a bit. Uh, but I wasn't all that interested until 1985 when... Uh, I ran into a friend who uh, I knew in Laos. I, I flew over uh, in Southeast Asia for about uh, six or seven years. Uh, this guy was one of the guys that flew in, in one of the covert programs uh, over there called the Steve Canyon Program. He was a raven, for those of you who know what, uh, who ravens were. Uh, anyway, many years later, he came to Nellis Air Force Base, transferring into the uh, uh, the guard, the Air Force guard, mm -hmm. and he came a call, gave me a call, came up to the house, and we were talking about one thing and another, and I asked him where all he'd been based, and one of the places he mentioned was Bentwaters, and Bentwaters is a United States Air Force base uh, in England, about 70 miles northwest of London, and most pilots uh, have heard about a saucer, saucer that supposedly landed in December of 1980. And when he said Bentwaters, I said, oh, that's supposedly where that uh, saucer landed. And he said, no, John, that's supposedly it did. He said, I didn't see it because I was confined to quarters, but I talked to the guys who did. And if you ever run into them, uh, you know, just ask them about it. And he gave me their names. One was General Gordon Williams. One was uh, Major uh, Ted Conrad. Another was uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Chuck Halt. And although I didn't run into those guys, I ran into other people who were uh, who had been there and had seen the saucer and 
the three aliens get, get out and uh, walk up to General Gordon Williams. Well, anyway, this set me on a... Uh, 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 investigation. I thought I knew a lot about uh, secret and covert programs, and it's been, you know, one of my big interests uh, is figuring out what's really going on. And uh, so I, you know, uh, checked around for about uh, two years, writing letters and uh, talking to people, and came up with the uh, the astounding uh, uh, revelation that yes, uh, it was true. There were UFOs uh, that our government was. Uh, dealing with uh, extraterrestrials unbeknownst to uh, uh, almost 100% of the public, uh, and that it was real and going on. And uh, for my efforts, uh, there were several uh, uh, very nasty articles that were printed about me. Uh, I was called into the company that I worked for then. I was a senior captain with a major charter company uh, uh, located in the Midwest. And they called me in one day, and they said, uh, hey, is it is it true that you believe in flying saucers? I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, yes. And they said, why? And I gave them briefly what I just told you. And they said, well, we can't have any captains that, uh, <laughs> that believe in that flying for us. You're fired. And they took my ID, and I was out the door in 20 minutes from a company that I'd worked for for 10 years. So that certainly cost me dearly. Uh, I, I might say that I've... I've flown some fun airplanes and had some fun after that, so it wasn't a total loss. Uh, I went on to fly the DC-8 uh, for some different companies and uh, really enjoyed myself, but uh, uh, that was basically what happened. John, there have been a couple times during your um, long um, in investigative uh, years when I know that you've sort of shut down. Uh, for a time, you did no interviews at all. Uh, and I, I think may, perhaps you did one during that period with me. Other than that, you shut down completely. And uh, I wonder if that was a result of this kind of pressure, or you just uh, felt you had gone as far as you could go, or got discouraged over the whole thing, or what led to that sort of shutdown for a while? Well, what leads to that shutdown is it's so overwhelming, the truth of it all, the, uh, the hugeness of it, uh, the reality of it, when it hits you that it's all so real, uh, sometimes you can't handle it. Like there have been several people that I've talked to at the test site that have worked up there, and there's very, very few of them that are that are in uh, to the extent where they know about the uh, uh, the government's dealing with the extraterrestrials. They'll quit the program and they'll say, "I don't want anything more to do with it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see about see anything. I want to retire and live out my life in peace." It just becomes so overwhelming what's going on. And that's essentially what happened to me. And yet you've come back. Yeah, I come back because I get phone. You know, you're out of it for two or three months or three or four months, and then you kind of wonder what's going on. You make a call and you hear about some uh, neat new uh, thing that's going on, and, and it pulls you right back into it. Back into the deal. You know. All right. Uh, I want to deal briefly with the cover-up aspect of it. Everybody thinks there's a cover-up. Uh, if indeed all this is going on, there has to be a cover-up. Timothy Good wrote Above Top Secret. The implication of it, and they covered it on the UFO report on Fox last night, uh, a couple of presidents, uh, people in high places have tried to get this out, but even presidents, according to this report last night, have been denied, and actually request denied. Uh, whoever knows about all this is keeping it very, very close indeed if a, if a president of the United States can't pry it loose. Well, first of all, the president of the United States does not have a very high security clearance. He's an elected official. 
uh, and the people who run this have a tremendous disdain for both elected and appointed officials. Those people aren't in office long enough, first of all, to be vetted to to get a security clearance, uh, and they not and most of them are not uh, in, uh, so they don't get it. So. Uh, one of the uh, misconceptions that people have is they think that top secret is a big clearance. They'll say, well, I know so-and-so, Colonel so-and-so in the Air Force, and he had a top secret clearance, and he didn't know anything about UFOs. Well, I'll tell you something about clearances. Top secret is the absolute lowest you can get. Above top secret, there are 28 levels of what they call top secret crypto, and they're labeled top secret crypto 1 through 28. And then above that, there's 10 levels of clearances each one higher than the other that are names like <clears throat> Umbra and Ultra and Majestic, Majestic being the highest of all clearances. The President of the United States holds around, not exactly, but around Top Secret Crypto 17. Uh, they tell him basically what he needs to know. The President of the United States makes decisions on information that is fed to him by the CIA and NSA, DIA and various other groups. He doesn't look at raw data that comes in. He gets summaries of information and those people just feed him the information uh, that they want him to make uh, decisions on and that's the only information he gets. He really doesn't have a need to know all this stuff, although as far as the extraterrestrials and UFOs, they tell him a little bit. They say, yeah, we have some saucers and yes, we have uh, some dealings, uh, but that's about it. So basically, that's how it goes. Uh, the President of the United States uh, does not have a need to know to run the day-to-day the -day stuff. He's merely a figurehead uh, as far as uh, running our country. All right, this implies then an ongoing, literally, uh, I guess, uh, I hate to use the phrase because it's such a catchphrase, but a secret government, a government that transcends uh, presidential administrations that come and go and holds some very important information always to itself. About right? Certainly. And that was set up by uh, President Truman in 1947. Uh, it was called the MJ-12. He initially appointed the 12 persons that were part of that secret government. Uh, they were various intelligence, uh, military, and scientific personnel to basically study uh, the recovered saucer and the implications of it. And uh, then when Eisenhower uh, was elected in 1952, he felt that the secret was so important uh, that he gave the, uh, uh, the essentially uh, the teeth to MJ-12 to actually make the major decisions uh, of the country based on what they had found out. And Eisenhower essentially regretted uh, what he did in 1960. He made a talk, made a speech in which he said, beware of the military-industrial complex, which he himself had created by giving MJ-12 so much power. Hmm. Uh, for those persons who believe... Uh, or who don't believe that MJ-12 exists, uh, my source I will release when that person dies. He's one of the top military figures of this country. He is... Uh, well, I, I don't want to push anybody into the grave, John, but are we going to have a long wait, do you suppose? He's elderly. Uh, it will not be a long wait. Uh, and when he does pass away, I will tell you my source for the existence of MJ-12, which I believe to be the secret government. Well, that's going to be a big story, and I hope you'll break it here. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, sure. means a lot. <laughs> um, John, there have been remarkable rumors, rumblings, and anger about this Mars mission, the one that just uh, apparently, I say apparently, 
failed. Uh, here we had a craft, a billion dollar, just about craft, uh, with no doubt very high resolution equipment on board. I would think at least uh, equivalent to our KH series of satellites, meaning we would have uh, received incredible detailed uh, photographs uh, of Mars. And just before the orbit insertion burn, they lost contact. It either blew up or a uh, transistor went belly up or whatever their latest story is. I don't know, but I would like your, whether you've, I know you've got your ear close to the ground on this kind of thing. What are you hearing? Well, it was the same thing as the Hubble telescope failure. Uh, neither event uh, ever occurred. The Hubble telescope uh, was looking at things which were, in effect, none of the public's business. So they just said that it failed. Uh, and that way they can look at things they need to do without the public saying, hey, you know, well, how about showing us we paid for this thing? Uh, let's see it. And uh, NASA doesn't want to show us. So they say, oh, you know, it failed. Oh, we're sending up some astronauts in a few years to fix it, and then we'll be able to, you know, to show you. Uh, same thing with the Mars Observer. They had some problems uh, with the Mars Observer in that it was going to show some very high-resolution uh, pictures of Mars, which we wanted to see, particularly the Cydonia region in which the uh, uh, the, the so-called face on Mars exists, which NASA says is just a trick of, of light and shadows, but in fact it is a huge face over uh, a kilometer long, uh, for some reason carved in the surface of Mars, and according to Richard Hoagland, um, located quite near a city. Uh, it's my understanding from several good sources that yes in fact that city does exist it's not occupied now but there was uh, obviously uh, an intelligent race on mars uh, uh, far in advance to us at one time uh, but anyway uh, the bottom line was this mars observer was going to give us some very good pictures and michael malin was in charge of the of the private kind of company selected by nasa to oversee these pictures and to categorize them and, and all that. Uh, Michael Malin said in the first six months that he was gonna, not going to release any pictures, but after that he would release uh, a selected dozen pictures, and then after that all the pictures would go into computer and would not be available for the public and no to the public, and no hard copies would be made. Well, How can they dare do that, John, or even suggest they're going to do that when it is taxpayer money that puts it up there? How can they do that? And so Congress started under pressure from uh, several groups, and a lot of people started saying, now, wait a minute, we paid for this. We want to see more than a dozen pictures of Mars. And it got to be uh, uh, such a problem for NASA, they effectually, uh, you know, uh, in effect said, well, you know, okay, then... Uh, uh, BS. You're not going to see anything. Yeah. And they picked a point where they were going to pressurize the fuel tanks uh, for the insertion around Mars and had everything go dead after that. So when people would say, oh, yes, uh, they pressurized the fuel tanks. Well, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist uh, to figure out that they pressurized the fuel tanks and something happened and it blew up. And so basically everybody's forgot about it. Uh, pictures are coming down uh, great, beautiful, uh, high-resolution pictures of Mars, and the public uh, is, is none the wiser. They buy it. They believe in NASA. They believe in their government. They don't believe their government would, would uh, uh, be uh, above this kind of subterfuge. John, there was a day when I was one of those people, and it wasn't very long ago, and uh, I have been disappointed again and again with the FBI, with... Uh, a BATF, 
And so my cynical quotient, as I like to call it, has risen and risen and risen to the point where I, I just, I, I almost, John, I almost don't believe anything they say anymore. Well, I have a good friend uh, that we all know, I won't mention his name, who's been very skeptical uh, of some of the of my claims, like when the Hubble blew up, uh, this guy said, well, you know, those accidents do happen, and then when we lost the Titan Force, well, this thing, uh, these things do happen, and we lost another KH-11. Well, you know, there are accidents, and uh, I was uh, back in uh, the uh, East Coast uh, doing something, and I called in, and I said, hey, what's going on? I said, have you listened to CNN? And, and I said, no, why? He said, uh, about the Mars Observer uh, blowing up? I said, oh, yeah, it's just another one of those uh, coincidences. No, it's a conspiracy. And I said, now, wait a minute. Uh, are you actually falling off the fence now? And he says, <laughs> yes, I've fallen off the fence, and I can't get up. Yeah, <laughs> I can't get up. I guess I feel a little bit the same way, John. I really did trust in our government for the most part, uh, not not very long ago, as a matter of fact. And it's been a long series of disappointments, and I, I guess I'm a bit off the fence myself. And a lot of things about the failure of the Mars mission for me don't add up. They uh, they made noise uh, first about the possibility of it blowing up, then they discounted that. Latest theory is we had a bad batch of transistors. Now, they, they claim this accounted also for the weather satellite, by the way, lost on the same day uh, and, uh, and, and one earlier mission. That doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up, John. If, if they had lost a previous craft because of one of these transistors, they'd have tested the hell out of them, run them up to two or three hundred times the rated value, been very sure. In other words, it was a problem point to look at. And then on top of all that, there's a redundant system. So none of this really quite adds up, John. No, but they got away with the Hubble telescope. They weren't sure whether the public was going to go for that. But when they got away with that, they figured, well, we could probably get away with some more. And uh, basically, uh, anything that's up there that uh, is going to give information, they just say, well, it doesn't work. And essentially, the public buys it because there's nothing they can do about it. Well, yeah, space is not a precise science, and accidents will happen covers a lot of ground. And uh, the way that they do it is most of that information, or all that information, is downlinked to an area near Fresno, and it goes through four or five uh, different stations before it ever gets to JPL or Houston. So your, your claim is they're, they're receiving nice, high-resolution pictures of Mars right this minute? No question about it. Uh, but the people at JPL and, and Houston uh, honestly believe that they're not getting information because they are not part of the subterfuge, and they cannot be part of the subterfuge uh, so that they can give uh, completely uh, honest uh, information as far as they know. The guys that you see on TV, they don't know what's going on, and the reason is is because they have to give totally believable stories to the public. All right, John, hold that thought. We'll be right back with John Lear right after this. This is an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. And now back to the best of Art Bell. 17,000 hours. Yeah. In 17,000 hours, one would think if they're up there, you would have been one of the guys who would have seen one of them. Well, let me tell you about flying. You don't. You're not sitting there looking out the window. You're looking at your instruments. Uh, particularly when you're flying jet aircraft. Now, at night, when it's more likely you're going to see something, you can't see outside because you've got the glow of the instruments inside, and you have to put your face up to get rid of all the cockpit 
reflections to do it. And it's just, it's something that doesn't happen. So then unless it was close and bright, you probably wouldn't see it. No, you really wouldn't. And the only time that I ever saw anything, uh, and it's still interesting these days when I think about this incident, it never occurred to me. I was in a Learjet. It was in the afternoon. I was descending from over Palm Springs. I was on a flight from Wichita to Los Angeles. I was descending through about 18,000. Let's see. How, how high would I have been? No, John, John, uh, John, John, John. I've never heard this story, um, so hold this story. We're now at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll tell the story. Okay. All right? Okay. Now, that is one I haven't heard. Apparently, John has seen something uh, as he thinks back over it. Hmm. We'll get to that right after the news at the top of the hour. Cheerio, everybody. Friday night, turning into Saturday morning. This is CBC. Good morning. I'm Art Bell. Here's John Lear. John, good morning again. Hi, Art. Uh, John, if you would, please, again, because we have a lot of new listeners, give us the basic medium-length Bob Lazar story 1A. Well, in the summer of uh, 1988, I had given a few lectures uh, at the uh, Clark County Spring Mountain uh, Library, and I got a call from... uh, a real estate appraiser asking for uh, copies of the uh, of my tapes and uh, stuff I had written, and uh, I had mentioned that uh, I was out of it, that I'd taken a lot of uh, abuse over this, and he said, "Well, if you ever get a, you know, if you ever decide to to make copies of stuff, give me a call. Uh, I'm an appraiser, and and at that time I needed appraisal for my house, so we struck a deal where you know I'd give him the tapes for." The appraisal. Well, he came up uh, with a friend of his uh, who he introduced as uh, a scientist, uh, Bob Lazar, who uh, formerly worked for uh, Los Alamos National Laboratories. And uh, we got to talking, and uh, this scientist thought that both me and the appraiser were, were nuts because we believed in, in flying saucers. And uh, he said there was no possible way that this this could be true because he had worked uh, at Los Alamos on some very, very highly classified uh, projects, and that if such a thing was going on, that he would have known or heard about it. Well, over the past, uh, or over the next uh, three or four months, uh, we got together and we gave this guy, uh, the scientist, enough information that made him question whether or not uh, it might be true. And enough information was given to him that he decided to find out whether it was true or not. And because of his, uh, um, because of his uh, uh, high education status, he had uh, two master's degrees, one in electrical engineering from uh, Caltech and one in nuclear physics from uh, MIT. And because of his uh, personal friendship with Dr. Keller, who incidentally runs this program, who, he was the father of the H-bomb, he runs this uh, saucer uh, back engineering program, uh, he was able to get to the, uh, up to the test site. He was hired as a senior physicist to replace uh, uh, another one who had been killed in an accident up there. And uh, he saw for himself uh, that, in fact, it was true. And what he saw was uh, at a location that's uh, just south of Area 51, Groom Lake, where a lot of the uh, the terrestrial uh, secret projects go on, such as uh, uh, the F-117A and the F-19 and Aurora and those kind of projects, uh, 
that the Navy does have a secret facility there that does, at least at that time, which was uh, December of 1988 through March of 1989, nine extraterrestrial craft, of which uh, he was allowed access to one of them, uh, the uh, inside uh, the the uh, middle section and the lower section, the middle section <clears throat> containing uh, the uh, the seats uh, and the uh, antimatter reactor which powers the craft, and the lower section which contained the gravity amplifiers. His job, which uh, he selected out of a number of of jobs that uh, they offered him, uh, they were he was only allowed to pick one, was the back engineering of the propulsion system. And uh, he came up to my house. Ex explain, John, if you would, to people who don't understand it, what back engineering is. Back engineering is taking um, a piece of equipment that's uh, very far advanced and trying to figure out how it works. And uh, it would like it would be like uh, uh, if an SR-71, which is one of our highly uh, formally classified uh, spy planes, landed at a World War One uh, air base. What would they do with it? They try and figure out how it worked, and this is exactly what we tried to do with this these extraterrestrial craft. Which John would be very much like giving somebody in 1910 a new Sony television. Right, and trying to figure out how it worked, what it did, and that kind of thing. Right. Anyway, that was uh, was Bob's job. And during that time, he'd come up uh, and uh, and tell some uh, a couple of his very close friends uh, what was going on, what he saw that day, and uh, and what he was doing. Huh. And uh, I have heard. Bob Lazar, if we're lucky, he may call this morning. And any late word on that, John? Do you know if he's... Uh, no, he, somebody was going to try and wake him up at 1 o'clock, but he sleeps pretty soundly, so I don't know who he's going to be up. <laughs> well, maybe sometime during the night he'll wake up and call us. At any rate, uh, he's been on here before and has told us exactly what he did. The, the, the next interesting aspect of the story is when people like yourself and others uh, set out to verify Bob's story, a number of rather interesting things occurred, didn't they? Yeah, uh, when people are brought into a very secret program like that, the first thing the government wants to do is protect themselves that if, should these people ever want to talk uh, and go public with this information, they want to they be sure that this person will not be credible. In other words, uh, the, the first thing they do is wipe out all the records, wipe out their schooling, which they did with Bob. There's no trace that he ever went to MIT, no trace that he went to Caltech, uh, but uh, in their uh, ingenious way of, of spreading this information, they left his uh, attendance record at Northridge uh, uh, College, which would seem that, yes, he did take a couple of uh, electrical engineering courses, but certainly not what he claimed to be. So those that are investigating said, yeah, yeah, he seems to be a very bright guy, but uh, certainly not uh, exactly what he claims to be. Well, is there not also, I think I saw last night on UFO Report, Bob Lazar's name appears, does it not, uh, John, on a telephone list for Los Alamos? Yeah, it does. And the detractors say, yeah, but he was just a cook there. A cook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, line, the, the bottom line, Art, is the guys that say, well, you know, you're just taking it on what Bob Lazar told you, and you have really no proof other than that. And I say, yeah, except for March 21st, uh, 
Bob, I was over at his house, and he said, hey, they're going to fly one of the uh, extraterrestrial craft tomorrow night. Do you want to go see it? And they said, sure. So how do we do that? And he said, well, I know a place where we can drive, still be on legal land, BLM land, and we can watch it to come out uh, of Groom Lake. And so uh, me and Bob and Gene drove up there uh, in my motorhome, and we pulled into a place. I said, you know, when do they fly? And he said, just, just at sunset. And so we drove out there just at sunset, uh, pulled up to park. I had a very powerful Celestron 8 telescope, uh, which I was unloading from the uh, uh, motorhome. And sure enough, just after sunset, this thing comes up and starts flying around. And uh, we all saw it. I had it uh, uh, right in the Celestron 8. There was no question that it was a disk. Uh, I saw it when it was descending back into Groom Lake. It was orange in color. It was radiating something. Uh, I don't know what. I saw it for maybe 15 or 20 seconds. There was no doubt in my mind what it was. Uh, so for those detractors who say, well, you just uh, taken Bob's word, yes, I was. But he told me exactly when that thing would fly uh, the day before, uh, and that has to uh, account for something. Do you think they're still flying those up there? No. I think uh, two years ago they moved everything north. There's a secret strip on the border of... Uh, uh, Idaho and northern Nevada, they moved it out of there because oh. there were just too many people watching what was going on. Yeah, they were having bus tours up there for a while. <laughs> yeah, and they've relocated uh, just on the border up near Jackpot and uh, reclo relocated many of the personnel huh. uh, up there in uh, Twin Falls, and they drive down to uh, the area uh, to do their work. John, uh, again, Linda Howe is uh, every Sunday on my Sunday show, Area 2000. One of the things that she just recently did was uh, went to England, where they've been having a rash of two things. One, crop circles, and uh, two, cattle mutilations. And the more I look into this cattle mutilation thing, the more I want to understand about it. These are surgical cuts, John. They have evidence that these kinds of cuts were made before we even had the sort of technology that it would take to do them. And uh, they're inevitably incredibly clean sites where nothing is left behind. There's no evidence of any human presence. And yet these animals are missing portions of their anatomy that have been cleanly cut uh, with, with, uh, with no further trace, just a high heat instrument of some type. What is going on? Well, I don't know. Certainly the cattle mutilations have been going on. Uh, the public has been aware of them since the, uh, the late 60s. They're going on all over the place. It's not just cattle. Uh, for instance, in, uh, in uh, Nevada, about a year or two ago, we had, uh, I think, hundreds of horses that were mutilated in northern Nevada, and the area was cordoned off by the military. Nobody was allowed to go in there. Uh, the story came out that they had been shot by uh, a hunter. Uh, but in fact, uh, they, they tried to prosecute uh, uh, two or three people and was thrown out for lack of evidence. I remember the story. I remember the story. And uh, at the time, you're exactly right. It was some, you know, crazy person, supposedly, uh, just shooting horses. But what was ridiculous was a reporter with the uh, Reno Gazette uh, wrote a story backing up the government uh, contention that it was uh, rifle shots that killed him. Uh, he never visited the site. He was never out there. He never got closer than a hundred miles to the site, and yet he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting, if you can imagine that. 
I, I think I recall some report of that as well. Um, so, wow. Uh, there's there's got to be any any idea what what motivation there would be to be taking parts of animals? None, none at all. It's just pure speculation. Uh, would it is it your view then that it is being done by the aliens? Well, I don't think there's any question about that. Certainly, we do have the uh, technology to to do those kind of cuts, but not with the precision uh, that they are done, and certainly not in the field. Uh, we would certainly need, uh, you know, huge uh, power generating equipment to do that. And the people that have witnessed uh, those things happen say that just a light comes down uh, and then goes back almost immediately, and they go over there, and uh, there's these uh, very uh, specific cuts all over the body. And uh, not not something you would expect. Uh, they say devil worshippers. Certainly, they wouldn't do precise cuts or have any reason or motive to. And uh, I can't imagine the other suggested source of all this. Somebody called me and said, oh, it's the government. Our government doesn't have need to go out and steal uh, farmers' cattle. If they want cattle, I'm sure they've got plenty of their own. Yeah, and certainly they wouldn't leave uh, the, the mutilations around to invite speculation. They do things more covertly than that. Uh, kind of an interesting story. When I first met Linda Howe in 1987, uh, at a conference for UFO researchers in Crestone, uh, Colorado, I drove with her uh, down to Roswell. And on our way, we came down through uh, Vaughn and Corona, uh, where the first uh, saucer crashed in 1947, and we were driving across that dirt road that goes from Corona over to the road that comes up uh, from Roswell. I think it's 285. And it's this long dirt road, must be 40 or 50 miles long, and just bouncing along there. And we come along, and right next to the road, we see a dead cow. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, now this is really something. Here I am with the foremost investigator of cattle mutilations, and here we see a dead cow. So we got out, we looked at it, and, and there was no uh, classic mutilation uh, cuts. There was a couple of holes, but but nothing classic, like no eyes removed or anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was kind of looking around, and then about 20 feet away, I saw another one. And I, said, and I went over to that one, and then I got over to that one, and I, and I looked about 40 feet away, and there's another one. And I, geez, I wonder what's going on. So I got up into the bed of the truck to look around, and to make a long story short, there were 35 dead cows right in the middle of this, you know, this little area in the middle of nowhere. So we got in the truck and we drove to uh, uh, to find the closest rancher. We went down this road for maybe half an hour, found the closest ranch, and asked the rancher uh, what the deal was. And he said, "Oh yeah," he said that it's. Uh, he gave us some name of a disease, and I forget what it was. Uh -huh. uh, he said, "Yeah, they uh, they died of this disease." So we went on our way, and Linda contacted uh, a veterinary friend of hers and said, "No, that's not possible. If that disease, uh, if those cows had died from that disease, there would have been a." quarantine within a hundred miles of there he said man i haven't heard of that so we never did find out what the story was or whoever removed the cattle wow that's some story though um i interviewed a couple of weeks ago bud hopkins and bud of course is uh looks into these abduction cases very closely and uh, he said for a lot of years he was very fascinated with the ufo phenomenon but as far as he was concerned that's old news. In other words, uh, he has simply come to the point where he's absolutely convinced, yes, we're being visited, uh, and, and the only remaining area of interest is not whether to try to prove the sauces are out there, but 
uh, figure out why these aliens are interested in human beings and why they're taking them? Well, let me tell you something about Bud Hopkins. When I first uh, read Missing Time, uh, which was his first uh, book about this, I was really intrigued. Somewhere, uh, something inside me told me, this stuff is true. And at the time, I worked for this uh, major charter company that I eventually got fired from, and I was running, uh, I was flying flights from uh, Las Vegas to uh, uh, to Cleveland. And about that time, the book Communion by Whitley Strieber uh, came out, and I remember going down to Walden Books, picking up that uh, book, and taking it on the flight with me. And uh, when I got to Cleveland, I started reading this thing, and I'm telling you, Art, the uh, goosebumps uh, started rising. For some reason, I knew that this was stuff was true, and I couldn't turn the light out that night. And I got so intrigued over this stuff that I had to meet Bud Hopkins. So at that time, I was based in New York. I called him. He's in the phone book. And uh, set up a meeting. I went down uh, uh, to uh, Manhattan, where he lives. Right. Um, and uh, spent maybe four or five hours with him. Uh, he shared some tapes of some of the abductees with me, and I'm telling you, it was it was frightening. We stopped about halfway through. I said, Bud, how do you live with this? And he said, Well, he said you just get used to it. And I'm telling you, some of those abductee stories were were absolutely horrifying, and, uh, and that's what really got my interest. Well, all right then. The same question applies that, that, that did to the cattle mutilations. Uh, John, any idea, what is your best guess uh, as to why they are taking people, why they are interested in us? What is it? Well, the best guess would be based on what Bob Lazar read at the test site is that uh, mankind is an experiment. Uh, people look to the sky and say, who are we, what are we? And people will say, uh, well, no use to wonder. Let's just get on with life and enjoy what we have. In fact, probably what we are is just an experiment. According to, to the documents that Bob read, an experiment was going has been going on for several hundred thousand years. They've made uh, 65 separate corrections to a, a being that they made from whatever was on Earth uh, at that time uh, made it or genetically engineered from something else they had to make us what we are today and what they refer to as containers. Now, uh, what we contain uh, wasn't specified. You could say it's blood enzymes, hormones, that kind of thing, but also there's fairly good evidence that, that the experiment involved the soul and that they, uh, they can uh, experiment with the soul, they can uh, uh, remove it, they can put it in, they can save it, uh, whatever they want. And that's my best guess, is well, those, those are the soul. But what, to what end the experiment is, I don't know. All right, these are the kinds of things that start to get my palms sweaty and remind me to warn the audience again, if they get upset, turn it off, you know, just go away. Um, Last night on UFO Report, and uh, I really found that program enlightening, John. Uh, at one, and I've never seen this before. At one point, they showed on camera quite a clear shot of an implant that was removed from a man's body. You you saw that, didn't you? What uh, what was that, John? It was uh, I forget what they said that it was made of. Uh, trace metals, I remember that, and and the main uh, makeup was what silica. 
Silica. Silica. And it was kind of, uh, what, what, what did you make of that? Well, uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's tracking equipment, uh, very sophisticated tracking equipment. Maybe it's something that was uh, infinitely more complex, but once it's taken out and viewed, uh, it dissolves into silica. I certainly don't know. Uh, there have been implants that have been taken out, have been taken out of the brain or uh, fallen out of the nose. Other implants that uh, look a little bit different. They're about the size of a BB. Uh, they're between two and three millimeters in diameter. Uh, and they have little wires sticking out from them. And they actually can be sneezed out of the nose, can't they? Apparently that's happened uh, on several occasions. I, I, I've got to admit something to you, John. Um, I have, since I started doing the Area 2000 show, I've been interviewing some of the, the biggest people in this field uh, without question. And as I've interviewed you over the years, an awful lot of what they have had to say sets off big-time alarm bells in my head. I, You know, a lot of what you said originally, John, I, too, thought you were maybe a little cracked. <laughs> but as I've talked to these big people, John, it, it's echo after echo after echo of things that you've told me over the years, and it's all beginning to kind of come together, and it's a very discomforting feeling for me because I'm beginning to sort of lean toward the side of, uh-oh, uh you know, maybe all this is true. <laughs> yeah, very well could be. It, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out some of this stuff. Well, the evidence does mount up. There's no question about it. And you've been out uh, first with an awful lot of it. Um, so much so that a lot of what I hear on this weekly show now, are these are things, John, that you told me literally years ago. And years ago, they sounded bizarre, strange, hard to believe, and all of that. Today, they're beginning to seem very real to me. John, we're headed to the bottom of the hour for uh, our break here. We'll come back in just a moment. Stay right where you are. Okay. This is Coast to Coast AM from Las Vegas. My guest is John Lear, and we will get to the telephone shortly. Stay right there. Once again, John Lear. John, good morning. Hi, Art. Um, just before I take my first call, uh, another kind of sensitive area, John. For years, uh, our media has depicted aliens as little fuzzy guys, um, for the most part, friendly guys. Um, we've got to call home kind of guys, friend to children, all that sort of thing. You were the first one I know of. Uh, over the years that said it ain't so necessarily what would you say about that now well the only thing I can tell you about that is I have some really good contacts not many but very good contacts uh, within the test site who are involved in this program and I can tell you that none of them have anything positive to say about the extraterrestrial uh, question there's none of them uh, they talk about it in terms of uh, uh, black uh, and ugly, in terms of dark and heavy, but nothing positive. So, if you were to advise the average citizen, boom, 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 craft lands, door opens, whatever it is comes out, would you, A, go up and shake hands and say, uh, as, as a member of the human race, welcome to Earth, or would you run like hell? <laughs> well, my original advice was run like hell, but like Whitley Strieber 
said when he saw what I wrote, he said, where? Run yeah, where? Run, run where, exactly right. John, let's take a couple of calls, intersperse all this with some telephone calls. Uh, here we go. Good morning on our um, east of the Rockies line. You're on the air. Where are you calling from, please? Edmonton, Alberta, CGC country. Edmonton, Alberta. Yes, sir. Okay. I've been very interested in this for many years because of the performance, the capability of some of these things uh, seems to have been captured on film and reported by very credible, credible eyewitnesses. Um, it defies almost any explanation to apply terms like anti-gravity or anti-matter conversion to these things because it just, we know about those things. How these things move, we don't know. But the question I would have is, um, are there any actual government dealings with these aliens? And if so, uh, why would they need to send a billion dollars to Mars and they could just maybe have our ET friends send us photographs? Well, that's a legitimate question. Uh, uh, thank you. And, John, uh, what about it? In other words, if we have a close relationship with these people and some of their technology, what do we need with a billion dollars on the way to Mars? Uh, in fact, we do have a close uh, uh, relationship, ongoing dealings with the extraterrestrials. The reason for Apollo, Gemini, uh, Mercury, the, the shuttle, the space lab, uh, Mars Observer, Viking, and all those are essentially for the public uh, to let them think that uh, yes, we are interested in this stuff. No, we haven't found out anything. Something for the public to focus on, uh, other than what's really going on. All right, Wildcard Line Three, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Good morning, um, John. Do you think the um, extraterrestrials um, could be using the human DNA structure or? A reproductive system to manifest themselves on the face of the earth. All right, thank you. To manifest themselves when? On the face of the earth. Uh, I don't really understand that question. Certainly they are using the DNA for something, but uh, I don't know why. Uh, it has been suggested, again, referring to the Fox program last night, uh, I forget who it was who said it, it was suggested that their own DNA structure is weak and weakening and that somehow they need something from us in our DNA, or they need to re refresh their own... I, I, I didn't quite get it, John, but something along those lines. That was Linda Howe, and that's been a theory that uh, has been floating around ever since I've been in it. And the fact is, or uh, one of the things that we think is going on, or, or possibly going on, is that there is a race of extraterrestrials that are on the backside of a bell-shaped evolutionary curve. In other words, uh -huh. we think that... Uh, evolution should always get better and better, but there's a point where it starts getting worse and worse. Uh, and uh, there's certain things that they can't do and will never be able to do. So uh, the theory is that they came to Earth to crossbreed with us so that they can get themselves on the front side of this bell-shaped evolutionary curve, uh, evolutionary curve to uh, to get their race. Uh, 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 so to speak, jump-started again. And the reasons for why they think this is because uh, they're uh, crossbreeding with uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of American women. Uh, they'll be pregnant. They think they'll be mm. pregnant for the first trimester, and then all of a sudden the fetus will be gone, and they don't know where it went. They have definitely confirmed as being pregnant, uh, but the fetus is gone. And then uh, mm -hmm. some of them will be uh, under uh, uh, regressive hypnosis and remember being in a, a craft and seeing uh, what they are told is is their child and they'll see a child that that looks part human but also looks part alien so 
that's where where that theory again i've talked to a number of people in the past weeks john that are confirming that as well that a lot of uh, fetuses simply disappear right uh i've had some friends uh close friends that have have talked about this stuff uh come up and say you know uh so-and-so was pregnant and then last week uh we were in the apartment and for some reason we had this very strange experience the air conditioner was uh very cold and we heard something but we didn't know what it was we went back to sleep uh and then uh, on the next uh uh, uh, visit with the doctor, and the fetus is gone. There was no uh, miscarriage, no discharge, nothing. It's just gone, period. All right. Uh, Wildcard Line 3, you're on the air with John Lear in Las Vegas. Good morning. I'm from the KVI, Seattle. Seattle, yes, sir. I was wondering, uh, why haven't we over the years heard, so to speak, lifelong or credible politician come out with a lot of this information? And why do you think the government's allowing you to? That those are that's uh, last one is particularly a good question. Why haven't they shut you up yet, John? Well, because they don't uh, mess with people who are only dealing with hearsay information. The only people they are quite harsh with are the people who have had a clearance to know this stuff and then go out and talk. For instance, uh, when Lazar came out, uh, they manufactured. Uh, uh, felony uh, pandering charges against him and uh, and made it stick. It was just it was a BS deal and uh, and he actually did get charged and uh, had to plead guilty to him and uh, just finished uh, uh, three years of probation. But that's what they do. Uh, I talked to several people at the test site about this and he said, Yeah, that's the way they work. You talk about this and you're going to pay for it. But as far as people like myself, uh, they're dealing with. I'm dealing with uh, secondhand information, and if they did anything to me, it would just give credibility to the subject. So the best thing is to say nothing. As far as why politicians uh, don't come out, they have nothing to gain. Politicians only do something if they have something to gain, and they certainly would have nothing to gain by uh, promoting uh, the extraterrestrial uh, contact view or uh, anything like that. How about that, caller? All right, thank you. All right, thank you very much for the call. Good morning. Line one, you're on the air in Las Vegas with John Lear. Good morning. Uh, yes, uh, two quick questions. The, uh, the first being um, arguments against uh, uh, these visitors would be that uh, we have a press that, uh, that uh, uncovered Watergate, uncovered a lot of, uh, a lot of things that, uh, that were done und undercover, and I'd like to know that given all the years, that uh, this has been going on, why hasn't the press been able to uncover it? That's A. And, uh, and B, uh, how is it possible that uh, given the, uh, even if these uh, craft were able to uh, fly at the speed of light, uh, given the uh, vast amount of uh, space between the stars and the hundreds of years that it would take to get to the planet Earth, how would they know, A, that man exists on this particular planet when man is basically new to this planet? All right, thank you. Let's take them one at a time. Uh, the question about the press was first, uh, John. Well, first of all, uh, the United States uh, press is more ignorant than the, uh, than the average individual. Uh, the gentleman caller uh, cites Watergate. Uh, if he knew anything about Watergate, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I use this example for people who say, well, why didn't the press, you know, they uncovered Watergate? And I say, really? What do you think they uncovered? And they said, well, there was these uh, two reporters for the Washington Post that, that did it. And I said, who were the reporters? And they say, well, uh, Bob Woodward and uh, Carl Bernstein. Right. 
And I say, well, do you know what their backgrounds were? Well, they were just a couple of college kids. And I say, do you, uh, would you be surprised if I told you that Bob Woodward spent six years in naval intelligence working directly for uh, Alexander Haig? Well, I didn't know that. Well, that's what I'd have to say, John. I didn't know that. You're just telling Alexander me that. Alexander Haig was uh, deep throat, and he's the one that... Uh, that uh, torpedoed Nixon, and although Nixon did have some shortcomings, uh, you know he was uh, he was um, an effective sandbag in many ways uh, yeah. on that thing uh, because well, he wouldn't agree. go along whatever whatever it was, and I don't know what it was, but uh, certainly that was nothing that the press uncovered. They were fed that information, and they were fed it by Haig to Woodward, who worked for Naval Intelligence. So uh, the press has literally uncovered nothing. Uh, we could take example of the uh, of the newspapers we have locally, the uh, Las Vegas Sun and the uh, and the Review Journal. We have some of the most ignorant reporters working for them, uh, who have absolutely uncovered nothing. As yeah, the pre It's true. I think that a lot of press in this country has become very lazy, very lazy indeed, and uh, depends on wire service reports, uh, the days of serious investigative reporting. Um, really are pretty well behind us. Uh, the second question he had, John, is, and it's a legitimate one uh, that a lot of people would want answered, uh, we think we're limited by the speed of light, and we can't even really approach that right now as far as I know. Uh, how in the world would these aliens travel the distances required to get here? Um, how would they do it, John? Well, first of all, if you're traveling in, uh, traveling in a linear direction, uh, you are limited by the speed of light, but the way they travel enables them to travel hundreds of thousands of times faster than the speed of light, and the way they do it is uh, based on the fact of the instantaneous propagation of gravity. Science, mainstream science doesn't know it yet, but uh, gravity is, is instantaneous. Uh, space is a fabric. You can pull it this way, and that is actually a substance, substance-like fabric. And you can pull it and stretch it in different ways. If you wanted to go, say, 22 light years from here, uh -huh. and you had a gravity source that could generate enough gravity, you could actually pull uh, or retract a portion of space from 22 light years away because it is uh, instantaneous. Uh, and envelop your craft and then turn off the gravity generator and be 22 light years away in a matter of, you know, minutes or hours. And that's how they travel. So it is the folding. You know, is that a good analogy, the folding of space? And then you No, kind of... folding, yes, that, uh, that could be uh, a good analogy, but it, it actually you attract or pull uh, uh, space towards you, envelop your craft, huh. and then you unite or coalesce uh, uh, with the space that's 22 light years away. All right, then as I understand the, the time thing, that would mean that you have only aged the, the, the real amount of time that it took you to make this hop, but to those on the other end of the hop, they would have, am, am I correct, John? They would have aged, uh, been long dead, I suppose. No, that, uh, this is instantaneous travel. Uh, and instantaneous, I mean within hours. Uh, what you're talking about is uh, uh, is traveling in a linear direction. All right. Uh, and then, then in that case, you would have to be in some sort of uh, uh, subconscious. So the uh, guy goes out in the space, and he's only yeah. gone 30 years, and people back on Earth, uh, you know, have, have. All right. So then it would be instant uh, to all parties concerned. The way that they do it now, yes. Uh huh. Or the way that the extraterrestrials do it. Uh, 
Fascinating. Wild Card Line 3, you're on the air in Las Vegas with John Lear. Good morning. Hello? Hello. I thought that... Uh... Turn your radio off, sir. Oh, okay. Yes. How far behind are we here? Uh, we're about seven seconds behind, enough to confuse you terribly if you listen to it, so turn it off. Sorry about that. I'm calling from Phoenix, KTAR. Yes, sir. The thing I want to say is I don't think that our government has close relations with aliens at all. I mean, if there was an alien spacecraft that actually approached Earth, and they would see what a misery-loving world we are. They would just turn around and head back to wherever they came from. But, sir, that implies that they're interested one way or the other in what kind of misery we're going through. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they might be interested in it, but I don't think they're going to make any kind of contact with us in our lifetime purposely. Well, I would ask you this. Do you care very much what kind of a life a cow has, or do you just eat hamburgers? No, I, I just uh, eat cows. I, don't, I cut them into bite-sized pieces. In other words, you don't really care what their life is like, whether they get fed on time, whether they feel miserable or anything else, right? Oh, no, I definitely I, I, I don't eat meat. Just a thought, sir. Yeah, I understand that, but uh, I, I really don't think that if there was alien life forms out there, they're even going to want to do anything with us right now, because I, I, don't, I don't think that this planet is even ready for something like that. Well, that is a good question. Thank you. Um, John... We've talked of this before, and I found your answer surprising, perhaps even almost shocking. Um, I asked you whether we are in the process of being prepared for contact. And uh, I think you've said that, yes, that may be the case. But you said, and, and now since then, others have also said, John, that if it's so, maybe we should not be told. We are not yet ready. Still believe that, John? Well, yeah, I think the caller is a prime example of that. Uh, he's not ready to listen to anything like that. And you must understand what the government is faced with. People say, well, why don't they tell us? Well, there's probably 1% of the population that would think it's really neat and understand uh, what's going on. But 99% aren't interested and don't want to hear uh, what's going on. So therein is the rub. You know, do we tell them or do we not tell them? And five years ago, I said, well, you know, it's our right to know. And But starting about two years ago, I'm, I'm kind of on the government side. I don't believe uh, people are should be told because they have no reason to be told. There's nothing that they can do with the information. There's nothing that would improve their lives. There's certainly nothing they can contribute to the problem if, if indeed there is a problem. Uh, so the basic thing is, uh, I thought, you know, the government was getting ready to tell us, uh, and I don't think they had e ever any intention of telling us. All right. Here's a pretty sensitive one, John. Um, I know that you've worked for the CIA, or at least uh, worked in operations that the CIA had a hand in. Is that fair? Yeah, I worked uh, for um, uh, different companies that, that had contracts with the CIA. Okay. Once that kind of information uh, is known, uh, over the years, John, because of your prominence in this field, there have been a lot of people who have said, not a lot, some have said that you are part of the disinformation campaign and you still now, right now, are working for the CIA. And uh, so, John, uh, prove to me you're not. Well, the fact is I could be. <laughs> But if I was, uh -huh. uh, it would be to to disinform the public. If yep, well, I right. was uh, disinforming them, my question is, what could be worse than what I'm saying now? Well, that's a good point. 
that's a good point. Or uh, one might suggest that you make aspects of the story sometimes so outlandish that it may psychologically sort of have a reverse effect and people reject it because it gets so outlandish and that in itself is a disinformation. I realize I can sit here and make any case at all, but you follow me, don't you? No. Uh, in fact, I'm not working for him, but uh, yes, you do have good points. <laughs> all right. Uh, wild Card Line 3, you're on the air in Las Vegas with John Lear. Good morning. Good morning, Art. Good morning, John. Good morning. I have this little ditty that kind of uh, explains my cynicism towards uh, government, not just ours. Them that gives them, takes them. Them that makes them, breaks them. And them that rules them, fools them. And uh, I think this century, that's exactly what uh, our government certainly has turned into, uh, the named and the unnamed rulers of our country uh, that you've been talking about through uh, what President Eisenhower did. My special uh, interest is in uh, time, time travel. And the speed of light, of course, is 186,000 miles a second. And uh, I listened very carefully to what you said about the folding and bending, which uh, I am not schooled. I'm not a physicist or whatsoever. I'm just interested. I was born in 1938, and I've been waiting all my life since I've been a very small child. Don't ask me why. I don't know. For them to come get me. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, no, I've never had any type of uh, UFO experience or anything like that. All right. Let's ask John about time. John, it's one of my favorite subjects, too, maybe my favorite of all. Um, I would like to know, as well as would everybody else, we all know that you and Bob Lazar are building a time machine, right? No, that's absolutely false. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that rumor got started. Um and I think it may have been on your show, I, I alluded to the fact that it could be built. Well, right. And uh, and then I think uh, we had Bob Lazar on at the time, and uh, he denied it. And I said, well, John, or Bob, uh, if you were building a time machine, would you tell us now? He said, no. <laughs> and that's about all it takes for a rumor of that sort. You still believe, John, a time machine could be built? Yes, but you have to have a tremendous source of power, of energy, something that uh, that we certainly don't have uh, in present day. It's not that you can go down to uh, Radio Shack or Sandy's uh, Electronics and buy the kind of power that's <laughs> necessary to build a time machine. I mean, it takes uh, huge, inconceivable amounts of power, uh, and we could get probably the rest of it together, but we don't have that. Well, I had Al Bielik on the program, and uh, you'll recall he was involved with the Philadelphia experiment, or claims that he was, and uh, that was the military, and they did have a huge amount of power. Does that Philadelphia experiment uh, and what's been written about it seem like it could have been to you, John? Well, let me tell you something interesting about Al. Uh, I've been very skeptical of his story, but I talked to some people who were uh, just recently out at Block Island uh, in the area where Al said a lot of this occurred. I'll, I'll tell you what, John, uh, we're at the top of the hour. Hold that on Al Bielik because it's a good sort of cliffhanger, and we'll come back after the news and dive into it. Okay. John Lear is my guest. An interesting conclusion uh, to not rule out their existence but state they have no... Uh, they are not a threat to uh, national security. It doesn't make sense to me. If they exist, they certainly would be a potential threat. Yeah. Well, they got away with it. 
Yeah. On, on the uh, uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City, Missouri. All right. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to say here has to do with the uh, religion aspect, if that's okay with uh, Mr. Lear. Sure. Okay. Uh, here's my opinion. This is just my opinion now, so uh, this could not might not mean anything to you at all. But I am a Christian, and uh, what I have gained from this is that uh, this is just my opinion. But that UFOs have actually been built under the watchful eye of the Illuminati. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, I've heard that before. What do you think about that? Uh, choose, choose your words carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Huh? It's it's possible. Uh, for the reason to explain, do you believe in the rapture? At all? I don't mean to to make this into a religious show. Yeah, please, please don't. Uh, okay. Please don't. Uh, in other words, John um, believes there is a connection uh, between religion and UFOs. Can he please that, expound on that? That you would not find agreeable and which he would rather not expound on, I think. Um, John? No, I, I, it's all the same to you. I do not want to expound on my religious views. All right, uh, it's it's kind of like uh, when you say this, I, and I, I guess we had to cover it, John, but uh, when you say this, it's like putting a box on the table that says, do not open this box, and then just leaving it there, and everybody who comes past will inevitably uh, open the box. And so they want to open the box. I understand that, uh, but perhaps some boxes are best left unopened. <laughs> right. On the uh, wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I'm calling from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Yes, sir. I can prove right now that what you, uh, what Mr. Lear is saying is the opposite of the truth because uh -huh. uh, the U.S. government is not covering up information about the existence of extraterrestrial life. Uh, government intelligence agencies have been spreading the rumor that aliens are among us to UFO researchers, and this has been documented by Jacques Vallée in his book, Revelations. Uh, for example, uh, in 1983, the uh, proven disinformation agent, uh, 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 Richard Doty at uh, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, uh, invited Linda Howe to... Uh, that Air Force Base and showed her these alleged secret documents claiming aliens among us. Then in 1985, Jacques Vallée and J. Allen Hynek were uh, invited to Norton Air Force Base by some generals there and told that aliens are among us. And, and I think it's all a lie, and I have a reason for it. Well, all right, uh, give that to us. You said you had proof, sir, so go ahead and lay it out. The proof is what I just told you, and you just get Jacques Vallée's book, Revelations. That proves that the government isn't hiding it, it's, it's pushing it on UFO researchers. And the reason for this reverse psychology disinformation campaign was stated by Stanton Friedman when he said that a belief in alien life would cause people to lose their faith in the value of nation states and lead to the acceptance of world government, which is exactly what the power elite who control the government wants, since their multinational corporations have most to gain from globalism. All right, uh, so there it is, John. He lays it out. It is something he's charging uh, to lead us toward the one world uh, government, that sort of thing. Well, I certainly respect his opinion, and uh, since I don't have any hardware, I'm certainly not going to be able to prove you know, what I say. Uh, John, at one time, can you tell the story about Element 115? Yeah, element 115 is, is the power source uh, 
for these extraterrestrial craft. Uh, we've been able to uh, uh, synthesize up to like 106. Uh, but there is an element uh, on up the line that is 115. And by pumping protons into 115, it becomes 116, which immediately decays. And uh, what, the de what the result of the decay is, is antimatter. And when antimatter is mixed with matter, it's a 100% conversion of, uh, of matter to energy, which is, is a very, very large explosion. And what they do is they control this explosion to create heat. And also out of this, uh, this uh, reaction, they pull off the gravity A wave with, 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 uh, without going into details they use to propel themselves uh, across the universe at speeds hundreds of times faster than the speed of light. Uh, at one time, um, and I, I, you tell as much of the story as you can or tell me to go fly a kite, but you had your hands on some 115, didn't you? Yes, Bob Lazar had his hands on some 115. We did some experiments which proved it was exactly what he said it was. And uh, I believe it was the evening of the George Knapp uh, UFOs, the best evidence. Uh, we, we kept very close watch on this stuff, but since we had it four or five months, we became a little careless, and it was left out. And that night they broke into Bob's uh, house and took it. So you no longer have it. We but and have That's no about as close as you've come to hardware. That's correct. All right. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hello. Hello there. No, you're not. On the first-time caller line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Hi, Art. This is Randy from Leavenworth, Washington. Hi, Randy. Um, I'm calling to ask Mr. Lear about the uh, three different kinds of aliens. I, have, I get a subscribe to a newsletter, and it talks about all the government research, and the different type ships are different aliens from different sectors in the universe, and there's the uh, reptilian form, the insectoid, and the human type. Mm-hmm. Well, there may be a lot more than that. John, how many are there? Well, in opinion, and this is only my opinion, uh, there's about 70 types that uh, are visiting Earth at one time or another uh, with various agendas. Some of them don't have anything to do with what's going on here. They're just coming down to take a look. But uh, they're all different types. And uh, some of them, that if you had a chance to look at it, you would actually die of fright because they are so alien to uh, to what we are used to. Hmm. How's that, Caller? That, that sounds good. All right, thanks. Uh, you would die of fright. Uh, are they able to appear to us uh, in, in a form uh, different than that which would cause us to die of fright? Apparently, some of them can do that, but uh, according to some of the abduction stories, uh, they hide themselves... You, you can't get a look. You can see their, their shape, but you can't see their face. And that's prevalent, uh, if you've read uh, John Mack's book, that's prevalent throughout all the abductions is they cannot see the face. Yeah, it's true. I had John Mack on the program about uh, three weeks ago, uh, John. Very interesting guy, and I really enjoyed his book. It was more of the same, but it, it's interesting stuff. Uh, it is. Uh, you know about the incident in which uh, some young lady apparently set him up? Yes, I thought that was uh, really disgraceful, and but it's just media tactics. Um, you know, I don't know what she gained by that. You know, it just uh, or what agenda or whose 
agenda she was serving by yeah, doing it, that. It was just an unfortunate incident. You know, I mean, here we've got a Harvard professor, lots of credibility, and, uh, and he gets set up. I mean, that's just almost too much for even me. John, yeah. hang tight. We're bottom of the hour. We'll be back to you. John Lear is my guest, uh, pilot, pilot now, captain of a, an aircraft. We'll be back with more on UFOs. People like you to get in touch with people like, say, the Dalai Lama and, and talk to them about this kind of stuff and see what they think. Well, all people right. That are, uh, people that are realized or, or that have studied mystical or metaphysical stuff that are, you know, that are in that genre. All right, thank thank you, uh, John. You don't seem inclined uh, to really be pursuing this much more. In other words, uh, my assessment of you psychologically is that you have reached some kind of inner conclusion. And uh, stop me if I'm wrong. And uh, and and you're kind of settled about it now. Is that right? Settled or fatalistic? <laughs> uh, all right, fatalistic. Yeah, I uh, I never in my wildest dreams when I started getting into this had any uh, remotest hope of finding out as much as I did and, and when I found out as much as I did it was just it was it was very interesting and it was it was in one way extremely satisfying but I didn't think that I'd find out much more than I did so you know I continued on my life and like I say there's a lot of guys that that just keep plugging along I know and, uh, but I think I, I found out pretty much what's going on, and so I'm continuing my life. And fatalistic is the right word. That, that's kind of ominous for a lot of us, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh. All right, uh, on the uh, east of the Rockies line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hi. Yeah, this is hey, Art. This is Kevin from KCMO. KCMO, Kansas City, yes. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask John a uh, question on the time travel deal. Um, I heard that you can only go so far, so far forward in time and so far backward in time. Is that no, true? No, I think you can go both ways as, as long as you want. And to the answer of the paradox, if you go back in time and kill your father, will you still be here? The answer is yes, you will still be here because time is compartmentalized. Okay. You can go back and kill your father, but you'll still be here. Okay. That's all I wanted to know. Right. I was curious about that. Right. Thank you uh, very much. In other words, uh, you will affect the local. Uh, all time is local. <laughs> is that right? That sounds like a good uh, analogy. Yeah. All time is local. You will affect uh, the immediate sphere or time that you commit this act in, but somehow time will bend back in on itself and everything will self-correct and you'll still be there somehow. Whatever. All right. Uh, on the uh, east of the Rockies line, you're on the air. Good morning. Uh, yes, sir. I was wondering, if, will we be able to get a tape of tonight's program? Yes, ma'am. Where are you calling from? Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City. Uh, yes, indeed, you will. And if you'll listen, I'll tell you how to do it, all right? Okay. I just wondered if you would. Thank all right. You so all right. Yeah, I'd be glad to do it. Uh, sure. If you want a tape of this program, the first two hours we spent on a very careful uh, chronicling of UFO history John's involvement in it, and all the rest of it. You can get a tape uh, by calling right now, area code 503-664-7966. Let me give that again, area code 503-664-7966. And on the east of the Rockies line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hi. Hi, how you doing? Where are you, sir? Uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. Good. You're on WFLP. the air. Yes, sir. 
Okay. First of all, love it. Glad. Outstanding. Glad you're enjoying it. Okay. Uh, for Mr. Lear, I have a couple questions. First of all, are you familiar with Guardian? Yes. You are. Guardian is legitimate? Oh, I don't know. Okay, you're uh, I know Bob Bachelor. I know that he's a good researcher. Um, you know, I, I'm sure he's not faking all this. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, other than that, uh, yes, I am familiar with the case. Okay. Uh, second of all, well, I've been trying to get through all night. <laughs> I'm kind of nervous now. Oh, well, relax. Just try to remember what you wanted to ask. I'm trying. Uh, second of all, without getting very in-depth at all about religion, because mm -hmm. uh, I know that's a touchy subject. Uh, but do these civilizations, uh, alleged civilizations, do they uh, purport to be um, religious the way we... Uh, All right, that, that's a reasonable question, sir. Uh, John, do these beings themselves... Uh, have a, a religious faith that we are aware of? Well, in answer to your question, let me tell you what Whitley Stryber said about that when he was abducted, and he's he's uh, absolutely horrendously terrified, and he's screaming, and he's saying, Oh, God, oh, God, help me, oh, God, God, please help me. And the, the little greys are looking down, and they very coolly they said, why do you call for their God, for your God? There's only us up here. <laughs> uh, that that will certainly serve as a as an answer, no question about it. On the wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Art. This is Jim in St. Louis. St. Louis, yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Lear, I want to thank you on behalf of everyone listening for coming on the show. Thoroughly entertaining. Well, thank you. Um, you seem to be hitting everything right on. Um, for people that call up, they've read a book, or they're real religious, they obviously haven't been following some of the stuff covered on the show. The cover-up, the military involvement, politics, everything, um, um, uh, you seem to be right on. I respect the fact that you don't want to go into the religion uh, aspect, because I've, uh, I've read a little bit, I think, of uh, what, you've, uh, what you've outlined there in uh, a, couple of different, uh, a couple of different books. But, um, again, the astronauts, the whole thing of keeping quiet, people can't understand. Why the why aren't they talking about this? Um, and that this stuff really is happening. Um, I'm uh, getting announcements on our uh, station here in KSD that say, this is a warning, this is not the views of this, this station. That's, uh, it is shocking. It's very shocking. A lot of this is. Except my religious beliefs are simply, I believe above all else, above anything else, that there is a that there is the God, God, the Creator of all things, and why can these things be happening? God, God takes care of other elements of nature in in accordance with the plan. Why can this not be somewhat along uh, an overall plan? In the plan, in yeah. other words, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, sir. Hold on. Listen to the answer. Uh, go ahead, John. What's the question? Well, the question was really. He walked around at six ways from Sunday, but he's asking, why can't uh, there be the God we all know, and not we all know, but many of us think is there, uh, who's in control and who's just... 
Well, let me tell you. I'm, what... I'm not properly asking. In other words, well, why, why do God and, uh, and and UFOs and the aliens have to be mutually exclusive? Uh, they don't. But let me tell you a story that that, that Bob uh, Lazar told me once. We're talking about uh, the universe and the, and the ramifications of it all, and and he's telling me about the theory that the universe expands until it can't go uh, any further, and then it starts contracting. Mm -hmm. And time reverses, and everything comes down to its original uh, size, less than a, an atom size, and then starts spreading out the other direction, whereas things only exist that travel faster than speed of light. And uh, so we came to the conclusion, uh, now, whoever made that, that's God. Whoever made that, that's God. Um, okay, well, I hope that serves as an answer to his question. You're on the air coast-to-coast coast AM with John Lear. Where are you calling from, please? Calling from Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown, yes, sir. Um, I have a copy of a videotape by uh, Bob Lazar. Um, I was wondering if Mr. Lear was familiar with it. Oh, he sure is. Um, and uh, I was wondering if he could uh, give us some comments about the other two areas of S4 that uh, Mr. Lazar talks about, about uh, the uh, physics of time travel and uh, the charged particle beams. All right, we've only got about a minute, John. Can you do it? Uh, I'm not sure what the areas that he's talking about. Yes, that uh, uh, they had both of those things there. Uh, once, you know, I, I told you the stories where uh, the hangar door was open. Uh, he walked into the craft uh, to do some work, and he was in there about two hours. And when he came out, uh, it, it was exactly the same, same time as before he went in. And when he asked what the explanation was that, they, they said uh, because the saucer's time shifted. All right. Uh, we'll have to hold it there. Uh, from Youngstown, Ohio, thank you. John, we'll be right back to you. Okay. All right. Relax for a few minutes. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM on the CBC Radio Network. If this kind of information disturbs you, and it does many, reach over and turn your radio off. For everybody else, there will be more. People, not phony, baloney-type people. And, of course, I lost touch with them then, but I wonder if he's familiar. John, are you familiar with Gurdjieff's book, All and Everything, where he uh, talks about Karnak, the good ship Karnak? I'm not catching the last name. What was Gurdjieff. Man named Gurdjieff. He has groups that are working. Say the name slowly, Bob. Gurdjieff. G-U-R-D-J-I-E-F-F. George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. And he wrote the book way back in the 40s called All and Everything. And as I say, then subsequently when I was with this couple in London, and I don't remember their name, but I remember going to several groups, and this was back in the 50s. I vaguely remember that book, but I don't know enough about it to make any comment on it. Right. But he, he talked way back then about uh, spaceship. Yeah. And, uh... All right. All right, Bob. Thank you very much uh, for the call. Uh, we appreciate it. I guess not, not enough knowledge to uh, really be commenting about it. You're on the air coast-to-coast -coast AM with John Lear. Good morning. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, <clears throat> this is Tim from KSD in St. Louis. Yes, sir. How you doing? Uh, uh, I want to know if you could uh, tell me anything more about the alien picture, and could you tell Mr. Lear about that experience you did, that you had? And uh, could you possibly tell me the Internet number and how I could get that off the Internet when you finally do send that up? All right. Um, I will. Thank you. Uh, yeah, he's right. John, I have a young man who has what he believes is an alien creature, the body of an alien creature, which is now dried. It's pretty good size. It's very hard to describe, John, 
Uh, I've got very good 35-millimeter photographs of it, and I've got a videotape of it as well. I'm getting them scanned and put up on, uh, on the Internet uh, probably by the middle of next week. The thing looks, uh, the closest I can come, John, is it almost looks bat-like, but it's not a bat. It's pretty good size. It's uh, a couple of feet tall, uh, two or three feet tall, and um, it is very, very weird. Now, without seeing it, it would be impossible for you to comment, but it uh, supposedly came from Puerto Rico, where there's been quite a, quite a bit of UFO activity, hasn't there? And uh, so I will show you that uh, a photograph um, uh, when I get a chance, John, and, and then you'll be able to comment. Uh, yeah, ask... interesting. I'd like to see it. Yeah, okay. It's just something I'm working on right now. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, this is John from Kansas City, Missouri. How are you doing? Hi, John. Well, um, basically, um, what I was calling about is just throw out another theory here if these things do happen. Um, is essentially, you know, like... Um, First off, I don't really buy that some alien creatures are really buying um, using people as food because the simple fact would be easier to kidnap a group of people to uh, and then breed them for as cattle. Would it not? Uh, well, well, what about? Are, are, aren't we being bred as cattle? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we are. <laughs> well, anyways, um, some of the other things like you said, like when they um, encountered them in Cambodia. Um, and they had, and the um, special forces had firefight with them. It would be a very good place to collect um, human bodies to um, study the anatomy mm. because you wouldn't have to worry about taking them and then probably bringing them back and things like that. That's a good point. Yeah, and um, truthfully, um, why are they so interested in this place? I mean, truthfully, we're in the ne neck of the woods, so to speak, in our galaxy, and what is so interesting for us? All right. Why Why us is the question, John. Why what? Why us? Why are they interested in us? I, I could almost answer that. I mean, when you look at the Earth, it's a hustle and bustle of activity and growth and beings and intelligence, and it's a contrast to everything around it, right? Yeah, well, you know, my opinion is is it's not that they're, uh, they came here looking down and say, oh, yeah, that's a neat place. Let's go down and visit. I think they created the whole thing, and that's their interest. Hmm. So uh, they have an intense interest in following their handiwork. Yeah, their handiwork being uh, the, the, the breeding of the human race over 200,000 years in which they made 65 separate corrections to make us what we are today, which, which they refer to as containers. Uh, you know, I doubt if the, uh, the experiment is over. I think that, uh, you know, it's continuing on. Uh, each of these separate corrections, they have to... Uh, you know, when they bring in the new model, they have to recall the old model, uh, and they do that with, you know, mass plagues, uh, uh, floods, uh, gyroscopic precessions of the earth, uh, which I might mention all this EPA and BLM and stuff about, you know, carefully burying our trash. You know, every 23,000 years, this earth rotates on its axis and takes up a different rotation and essentially cleans everything out. So why are we so worried? We're about, you know, a thousand years overdue for this rotation. So why are we worried about all this, uh, this trash? You're talking about a polar reverse. Yeah, I just a little I, bit I, irritated because it used to take me seven minutes to drive to the dump, but now it takes three hours. <laughs> 
time for the big clean, cleaning. It's, it's all going to be done for us. We don't have to worry about that. All right. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Where are you calling from? Calling from Bakersfield, Art. All right. We're holding this for east of the Rockies, sir, okay. for about five more minutes. Uh, thank you very much for the call, though. On the wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Good morning. Wonderful show. Sunshine here. I think that was Betty and Barney Hill, wasn't it? No, he said 1955. Oh, well, I didn't know what when their book came out, Betty and Barney Hill. Didn't... It was after 63. Oh, I see. Okay, my mistake. But anyway, they did allude to the time travel too, or the time uh, span too, I believe, didn't they? I mean, they were in there for some time, and yet when they came out, it, it was lost to them. Yeah, they had that same experience. Yeah, wonderful show. Thanks for having us. All right, thanks for uh, making the call, and good morning. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hello. That was it, I guess, John. Uh, on the first-time caller line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hello. Yes, uh, I'm calling from uh, Al near Albuquerque. Yes, sir. Actually in uh, um, east of the mountains, about 500 feet from the Manzano Test Range. Uh-huh. Sandia Base. Um, I had a sighting here about two years ago in May. Uh, since then, I've talked to three of my neighbors who have had similar sightings, a retired school teacher and uh, a real estate agent. <laughs> You're not having some of that famous New Mexico Taos hum right now, are you? No, I do hear strange noises <laughs> once in a while, and they sound like a diesel truck in the distance or um, a machinery clanging around, but some of it I think I'm hearing uh, construction going on on the base. Now, was your uh, sightings uh, within the uh, Monzano Weapons Storage Area, Coyote Canyon? Well, I was, driving, I was on the highway driving home, and this was a large orange glowing sphere that went over my car, and it was heading due south into that area. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of reports. As a matter of fact, uh, when I first got into this, uh, Paul Benowitz had uh, just lived in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Four Hills section there, mm -hmm. and he set up in 1980 a videotape which ran 24 hours a day. He changed it every eight hours. And he got some spectacular photos of dome-shaped objects taking off from the Monsanto weapons storage area. Well, I sometimes wonder if, you know, if they're saying that there's less action going on up in Nevada, maybe some of it's moved here. Well, it could be. Either they or Holloman. I've also got uh, two acquaintances. Uh, they don't know each other, but they have told me that they were involved. One worked for the contractor and the other... Uh, worked for somebody in the architectural design firm that built all these underground bunkers back in the early 80s out there. And they said that these, these bunkers were as big as football fields, uh, solid concrete, they're huge, and, of course, nobody knew what they were being built for. Yeah, uh, I had and a there friend no, that, no runways. Yeah, I had a friend that, uh, that went in one of those things, and he says that there was nothing in there, but he said it was absolutely enormous. Yeah, and uh, but there was nothing in there at the time he went in. Well, All right, caller, thanks. Well, can I ask one more question? Yeah, very quickly. Yeah, do you, do you think that anything will come of this Roswell investigation? All right, and yes, Representative Schiff, of course, is off and running on the investigation, as you know, John. Yeah. Uh, do you think anything will come of it? No, zero. Zero? Zero. Why do you think that? Well, because it's it's a cover-up. They're not going to let some congressman go in there and and. Uh, and find out what's going on. Yeah, I suppose at the levels all this uh, moves, a congressperson is not much. All right, John, uh, I'd like you to hold on. We've got a break here at the bottom of the hour, so relax for a few minutes. We'll be back to you. Okay. My guest is John Lear, um, pilot, uh, airline captain, 
and Believer and IFOs identified flying objects. That's the nature of the discussion this morning. It may disturb you if it does turn it off. If you want a copy of the entire program, you can call beginning right now, area code 503-664-7966. We will ever know. Which certainly can be done and very easily if you have the technology, but I'll have to disagree with you on time travel. You can certainly go forward in time and you can come back. Well, I'm sure you can go forward, but I doubt, I doubt very seriously you'll be able to come back. Yeah, well, okay, well, we disagree on that. It's just on common sense, though. I mean, I don't, I don't understand how you think you can come back to a time that you can go forward, unless you're talking about this gravitational thing where you hold off and you, you're just, you're thinking you go in, in forward in time and you're, you, you're never leaving the time that you're let, you know, you're, you're Time stands still while you're gone. Where are you calling from, please? Everett, Washington. Everett, all right. Uh, well, John, when, when I get my time machine, I'll come and pick you up and uh, we'll take a ride. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, do you think, John, in your life that you will do that? No. You do not? No. Why, do you, why is that such a quick no? I mean, if you had a chance, an opportunity, uh, with Bob Lazar and others and lots of funding, would you endeavor to do it? No, I think... Well, with lots of funding. No, there's very complex uh, machinery. I, I don't think it can be done. I'm 52. Uh, I'm going to retire here at 60, and I hope to have, you know, maybe a couple of years of tending my lawn, but certainly there's nothing I want to go back and see or go forward. It's an interesting concept. It certainly can be done. All right. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Morning, Art uh, Cliff in uh, Glendale, Arizona, KFYI. Yes, sir. Uh, I was wondering if... Uh, John might have uh, privileged information that uh, might uh, give us a clue to our future. Have uh, have we been told anything that might uh, might tell us where we're headed? Oh, well, I will tell you this: that in my brief career as a ufologist, I've made several predictions, two or three of them, and they've all turned out false. So I may be a good researcher, but I'm a terrible prophet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, all right, John. Thank All right, th thank you very much from uh, Arizona and, of course, KFYI. On the wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hi. Hi. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, John? Yeah. Oh, this is fantastic. Uh, John, I'm an old uh, fighter pilot from uh, Korea, and we used to fly the old F-86s. Yeah, my favorite one, D's. Well, okay. Uh, uh, they were Pratt Whitney and... Uh, and uh, we do the Rolls-Royce engine. Yeah. And the only time I ever got involved with your your company was when I bought my own jet, and it was a, a Lear jet. Anyway, we had a flame out at about 35,000 feet one time coming over to Kansas City. No, I think it was Cincinnati. And they came, uh, my pilot came back, and uh, we get up there, and we said we had to break it down to 25,000 feet. And we kicked her up again, and uh, she flew like a real trooper. Yeah, interesting. Oh, interesting as hell, yeah. Anyway, the, the, the reason I wanted to call and uh, get my... I'm uh, I'm calling from San Diego, the home of the tailhook uh, maniacs. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. We're all a bunch of uh, cowboys out here. But uh, some of us uh, are really curious about things. And do uh, uh, you know about uh, Thorne? Rip Thorne? No, which one is that? Well, he's a physicist, a cosmologist out here. And uh, we were wondering about what the heck is going on. Uh, we built the, uh, we're involved in the accelerator up there at uh, 
at Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. And uh we took a whack at things and uh oh uh, my god, I got a million things to tell you. Well, you're right in the middle of the action down there in San Diego because that's where the Navy has a lot of their uh, operations. And I could tell you uh, some real weird stories about stuff that goes on down there, but but you are right in the center of operations. I doubt if you could ever penetrate it, but if you could, you'd see a lot of real interesting stuff. Well, uh, here's what we got. We're looking at uh, uh, times 10 to the minus 33rd. And we're looking at, instead of uh, black holes, we're looking at wormholes. Yeah. And this is a concept that Thorne has uh, been preaching for about 10 years, and I, of course, I think he's a wacko. And it's a uh, viable concept, uh, a wormhole. And uh, you know that we've got a black hole uh, in our vicinity. Is well, this supposedly every galaxy has its own black hole. And as yeah. far as wormholes, I don't think that's how it works, but, but go ahead. Well, it, it has to do with the space-time continuum. And uh, I listen to Thorne. Of course, Thorne's an old, uh, an old, uh, an old buddy of mine. And uh, at first, it's uh, inconceivable. If you look at the uh, space-time continuum, it is a viable concept. Yeah, I think that what he, what he's trying to do is figure out how they can get from place to place. Uh, without violating the uh, the speed of light, and and they and because they don't have access to the real information of how it works, they invent stuff like wormholes. But the way it works is called the instantaneous propagation of gravity. Science doesn't know it yet, but gravity is instantaneous, and there's two forms of it, A and B. And basically, to travel hundreds of times faster than the speed of light, what you do is generate a very powerful beam of gravity and pulls space towards you. Space is actually a fabric. It can, it can be pulled this way and that. We think of it as a nothing. We think it is something that has just one hydrogen atom per square meter. In a John, in a sense then, you're not really traveling through the space to get from A to B. No. You, are, you are jumping across an area. Correct. You are pulling space towards you and coalescing or uniting with space that's maybe hundreds of light years away. But that's why they invent wormholes because they're trying. They know that it can be done. They're just trying to figure out a way that it, that it can be done. I think I know the concept of a black hole. What's the difference between a black hole and a wormhole, John? Well, a black hole is just a very intense, uh, uh, a collapsed star which which is not letting any light. It is so dense that it doesn't let uh, light go uh, through it. Wormhole is a completely different thing. Wormhole is what they're uh, speculating is how to get from. Uh, point A to point B, uh, very fast without violating the uh, the uh, principle of the speed of light. Do you believe it can be violated? And I don't mean by the method you just described, but I mean uh, in actual s speed travel. No, I don't think you can go faster than the speed of light in a linear direction. You have to do it some other way. All right. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Art. Good morning, John. You know, listening to you today, I'm Susan from Moscow Mills. And, um, Moscow Mills, where? Idaho? Missouri. Missouri, all right. KSD, yes. Yes. Um, you know, in the fear that some people have of what John is talking about, they must understand that whatever experience that we have as humans or humanoids or whatever, it's a very good experience. And obviously, whoever and whatever has created us and whatever use that we have for them, we have use for ourselves, too. And that there's such, I mean, there's so much love and joy in life opposed to the diversity 
which there's plenty of that too. But the the mind has to the mind that was given to us and the spirituality that we have um, needs to be used. And I think that's what he's talking about when he says, "Go on and live your life, even though you have more information." That's right. You get to do what you want. You get to make your life and have fun and and uh, do whatever you want. Right. Can Can you tell me if there's um in in the other dimensions of what you're talking about in the the 70 or so groups, do they show any sign of their own spirituality? I'm not talking about religion here at all, but of a, of a separate spirituality or more intense spirituality or just different? Or No, I don't have an answer to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thanks, thank, thank you very much for the call, and it'll have to be fast, but uh, we'll do one more here. On the wild card line, you're on the air. Hello. Oh, hello. Um, I was wondering uh, if Mr. Lear uh, has ever read uh, people such as Charles Ford and H.V. Lovecraft and people like that. I'm sorry, what's the name? Charles Ford. He, um... Charles Ford and Lovecraft? Yeah. No. Oh, oh what Charles is it? Ford? Charles Ford, yeah. Um, yeah, I've he... read uh, a lot of his stuff. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. Um, it just seems that when you talked about and one thing that I think I'd like you to uh, expound upon a little bit is when you referred to that that, that somehow uh, humans were considered to be containers, vessels. Even I've heard that word. Uh, where where are you calling from, ma'am? I'm in San Francisco. San Francisco. All right, uh, John. You've said it before. Vessels, containers uh, for the soul. Well, it, 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 we're speculating it for the soul. It wasn't it, it wasn't described in the documents that Bob read exactly what we were containers of. We could be containers of hormones, enzymes, or whatever. My own speculation is that we are containers of soul. Well, it's the, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's a good one, and uh, I, hope, I hope we do contain souls. You, you can never destroy the soul. It goes on forever and ever and ever. And uh, some people uh, are able to recall uh, past experiences, but most people are not. You're not supposed to be able to, uh, to recall, but in fact, the soul goes on forever. All right, uh, on that note, uh, vessels, all of you, uh, containers, we are going to have to pause for uh, mortal news at the top of the hour. We'll be back with John Lear and more from the CBC Radio Network. Thank you. Uh, that's an interesting comment. I, I hope it's not, too. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Yeah, I'd like to ask John Lear a question, but I, I really doubt that uh, he can do anything but deny it. Uh, John, how long have you been involved in the occult? Uh, never, as far as I know. Uh, you're saying that most of the information in the books that you read are not occult books? No. No, oh, because... Uh, I read a book uh, about 10 years ago called The Cosmic Trigger, Final Figures of the Illuminatus, and how they were going to duplicate the second coming of Christ with the, um, with the alien deal that uh, people would believe that they were going to be saved by aliens. Yeah, Christ, no. John, I, I, I understand what he's saying. I'm sure a lot of the religious folks out there think you've got three sixes somewhere tattooed under your hairline. Huh, John? Yeah. Under that gray hair? Uh, John, what about Air America? Um, you did, uh, can you talk about that at all? Sure. I worked for CASI, which was Continental Air Services, Inc., a wholly owned subsidiary of Continental Airlines. We did the same work as uh, Air America, but we were not a wholly owned subsidiary. 
of the CIA, which Air America was. We did we did all the same stuff, but uh, no, I did not work for Air America. I worked for Cassie. And those that are familiar with the operations in Southeast Asia will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to... I, I was going to bring some up, but I'm go not going to... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. What is it? Uh, Iran-Contra. Yeah? You want to talk about that? Sure. What, what's there to talk about? Uh, you, um, you transported or were about to transport some um, material to Iran, yes? Arms and ammunition from Israel to Iran, right? Uh-huh. So you ran some of the early uh, early weapons that Israel cut loose on our word, is that correct? Yeah. we didn't. I never made a flight. Like I say, the first airplane in got shot down. The Mossad, who was running the operation, didn't want to send the 707s in, which I was flying. Uh, so they, they uh, canceled the operation. Later, I think it was like six months, six or eight months later, they ran it with another airline that was out of, oh, somewhere like NASA or NASA or someplace like that and ran it from the Persian Gulf, like Dubai or one of those countries, directly into Iran so they didn't have to go around another country like, like we did, uh, Turkey. We had to go through Turkish airspace. And the deal was that we would drop every other load uh, or give Turkey every other load that went in in permission for flying over their airspace. All right. Just thought I'd get that out. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, Seattle. Seattle. All right. Yeah, uh, I'd like to ask him a little more about that um, the security that the uh, the government has uh, that doesn't allow the president to know very much. Yeah. Uh -huh. What was that called again? Uh, well, I just ex uh, described how security works. The lowest clearance is uh, top secret, and then there's 38 levels above that. But the President of the United States only has, like, a number 17 level. Uh, and there's not enough time to clear him, nor is there any reason to clear him. What, what sort of, uh, is this some sort of government agency that, that this security... You had mentioned some name. MJ-12? MJ-12 yeah. was created yeah. by President Truman, and it more or less got out of hand in 1952 when President Eisenhower came in. Being a military man, he gave more teeth and more power to MJ-12, and it got out of control. They ran the whole operation. Uh, people who think we have a democracy, even a republic, are badly mistaken. We don't. Uh, but we hear it enough that we have a free country. Uh, you know, the, the bigger the lie, the more people believe it. But, in fact, it's not true. MJ-12 runs the whole thing. Okay, one last thing, Art. Could you give the uh, number, or not the number, the address to your, uh, to your network? Uh, I'll take it off the, on the... Uh... The address to the network? What do yes, you mean? Yes, sir. I'm, I'm sorry. What do you mean, sir? The address to the network. Do you mean to write to me? Yeah, to the network. Yes, sir. Well, to, the network is in a separate place than I am. Do you want... In Oregon, yes. Oh, in Oregon. Yes, sir. I'd uh, like to see about advertising on your program. I see. Okay, well, contact me by fax. All right, thank you, sir. All right, thank you. And that's area code 702-727-8492. Um, that's my fax number, 8499. If uh, you want to contact the network directly, it's area code 503-664-8499. Eight eight two nine, eight eight two nine, and if you want a tape of this program, as long as I'm going nuts with numbers here, it's area code five zero three, six six four seven nine six six. John, uh, we're in the number mode. Why don't you give the address for the Lazar tape? Okay, the Lazar tape is Tridot Corporation. That's T R I D O T. 
Corporation, and it's 1324 Southeastern, and it's Las Vegas, Nevada, 89104. Don't look for the number because it's not in the book. It's uh, $29.95 plus $3 in shipping and handling for the Lazar tape where he describes his experiences with the uh, back engineering on the on the Saj. All right, good. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi, Vancouver, Canada calling. Art, great show. Hello, John. Um, I don't really know too much about UFOs, so I might, this might be a real basic question, but um, can you tell me about navigation? Uh, of these craft and oh, what what they would be built of, what kind of uh, compounds or? It's my understanding that the that the uh, the uh, material that they're made out of is more or less uh, uh, a grown material. They've been able to compact and uh, uh, compact the atoms to such a uh, tight state that it's it's almost indestructible. Uh, we've seen that many times where a, a saucer will crash into sand and be at a 45-degree angle uh, impact, but uh, there's little or no damage at all. As far as the navigation, I don't know how that works. I just know how the propulsion works. Okay, well, best of luck. All right, thank you. John, you remember, Did first of all, did you happen to catch the movie Roswell on Showtime? Sure, I was. Uh, the producer was a friend of mine. Oh, um, what was your assessment of the movie? Was it good? Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Each time they make a movie, they get a little closer and a little closer to the truth. Uh, I didn't like the way that they portrayed the alien as, you know, some poor uh, lady, you know, reaching out. And, yeah. And it, and it didn't look all that realistic, but, you know, it was better than this stuff before. Well, in that movie and in descriptions of Roswell, uh, there is a number of witnesses, John, who say that a piece of material from one of those craft was held, and they showed it in Roswell, and you could crumple it up, and it would spring right back out again. Right. Is that similar to the material that you described a little while ago? Um, as the construction? Yes, sir. Uh, some of it. Some of it. Yeah, you can imagine, I suppose, various parts of it. Uh... Yeah, they're all different. Uh-huh. All right. Um, very good. Let's uh, go here. On the wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Good morning. Uh, yeah, this is Greg from Nikiski, Alaska. Nikiski, Alaska. Yes, sir. Right. Anyways, I missed the first couple hours because Kate and I doesn't... Uh play those until after you're over. I see. So, so he may, this may have already been answered, but I got uh, three short questions for John. Um, number one, are you a member of the Trilateral Commission? <laughs> no. How about the Council on Foreign Relations? No. How about a member of the Masons? Of what? The Masons. The Masons? I, well, I, I, I know, but what is it? Oh, the Masonic Lodge? Oh, the Masonic. No, but I can tell you that I have certainly been accused of that. Okay. Uh, how about the CIA, John? Let's cover them all. <laughs> KGB. <laughs> NSA. No? no? I'm just a poor old airline pilot. All right. Is okay. That... Okay, caller? Okay, thanks. Thank you. McKiskey, Alaska. Well, that covers most of the alphabet agencies anyway. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Not a lot of time. Hi. Good morning, Art. Good morning, John. morning. Uh, about a couple, two, three months ago. My wife and I were looking at the telescope. We had a really good uh, view. And then in the outer, outer layer of the moon, there was like a blue half moon. And, but, but there also looked to be sort of like a craft that was, um, I never talked, my wife and I don't want to talk to too many people about it, you know, because we don't want to be accused of being nuts and all that kind of stuff. But 
is that really possible, or, or do you think maybe that was more like a reflection of maybe the sun or, you know, of the picture we've got? Because it was, you know, more like a soft, it was like a softer shape, but it was really uh, like an orange type with a little bit of light, not a whole lot. possible. A very good friend of mine uh, one morning uh, was... John, we'll, we'll have to hold the, the rest of this, I guess, so uh, stay right where you are. We'll be right back to you. You're listening to the CBC Radio Network. He never saw his telescope become a reality, but he was led by an invisible dwarf who apparently inspired him, told him where to build it, and that sort of thing. I have two questions. First of all, what does your uh, guest think of George Adamski, who is also a local fellow here? He was apparently the father of the UFO culture. And also, does he have any information on a hypersonic vehicle called Aurora, which is apparently a top-secret thing coming out of a base in northern Scotland? Uh, we have a lot of sonic booms here on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and uh, we've been hearing that this is coming from this Aurora vehicle, which uh, does something strange over the San Diego area. All right, hold it there. Let's get a response. John, First of all, uh, George Adamski uh, reported everything exactly as it happened. He was reported to be a, a hoaxer, but no, all that stuff happened to him. Uh, the photos were analyzed by friends of mine. Uh, who had very good analyzing equipment, and it was true. There was one picture of him looking outside of a saucer, and, and that was true. Hale had a very interesting background. There was an alien that talked to that guy and led him uh, in some of his research endeavors, and he has a very, very interesting uh, history. The Aurora is uh, a Mach 15 airplane uh, operating out of somewhere in the United States but also goes into Macrahanish, which is in northern Scotland. I see. Yeah, that is a, one of our top secret, one of our six top secret airplanes. How high does that fly, do you know? 285,000 feet. Wow. Okay. All right, thank you. And at, at Mach 15? Yeah. Whew. People say Mach 7 or 8, but it's not. It's Mach 15. Mach 15, wow. Um, Toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hello. Hey, this is Dana and Eugene. Hi, Dana, KPNW Country. Yeah, um... When I lived in Redmond, Washington, I was over to friends of a friend's house, and uh, there was a Army intelligence guy who his dad worked with for a lot of years, and uh, this guy sent him like just a thousands of page document. He was supposedly on the run from the government because they were trying to hunt him down, and he sent like six of these papers out. And one of the things he said was that Roswell, and he was giving, I mean, case file numbers, everything, anything you could possibly want on it. I just barely saw the document, but we just sat around and talked about it one night. He said at Roswell, they recovered the bodies. One of them was alive. His name was something like Emu or Enu or something like that. Uh, they had, like, two separate brains, one on the left side, one on the right side. That's correct. They ate human flesh. Oh, please. I didn't know that, I, but... Yeah, go ahead. Um, and just, you know, he went into the whole cover, but, I mean, he detailed everything from, you know, different fighter pilots, their names, their vehicle identification number, everything, you know, just hundreds of documents on that. Uh, that it would be great to get those documents, wouldn't it? Oh, I, I wish I knew the guy. I mean, uh, that was the only time I ever talked to the guy. I moved like a week after that. Huh. All right, thank you. Uh, John, a brain on the left and a brain on the right? Yeah, it was called bifurcated brain system. 
completely independent and separated by a ridge bone. Now, why that was, I don't know, but I remember reading the autopsy report on it. Wow, you have an autopsy? Well, you know, the, the stuff that uh, Stringfield print, uh, put out. Yeah, all right. Um, on the wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hi. Yeah, this is Lewis over in Chico. Uh, John, yeah. uh, about two years ago, I had an opportunity while I was back east to uh, run into an intelligence officer. I won't give his branch service because I certainly don't want to get him in trouble. But uh, he, he worked out of one of our top command units back on the east coast. And he told me that, now that's what he said, that the aliens that, that supposedly that our government's dealing with are in a non-interference type of pact. And that that there were other aliens who were interfering, and he said there was actually three levels of government in this country. And they're all vying for positions of power, and they're kind of all in like a standoff uh, to each other because, you know, different groups of these supposed aliens have uh, uh, upped the ante. You know, it's just kind of like here on Earth, you know, Bosnia. You know, somebody gets an AK-47, and the next guy gets a nuclear bomb. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, and I think your friend was right. Uh, he also said, though, that the ones that, you know, were, you know, they kind of kept, kept a, over an overall picture of the thing. He said that most of the abductions were not being carried out by aliens, but they were being carried out by um, by the government, and it was for use for later, you know, they were, they were programming people. They would go out and find people who would be susceptible to this. He said they had special editions of films that were very subliminal, and they would get like a control who would make friends with certain individuals, and they would go over to the guy's house, you know, and show him a special copy of E.T., except the guy's not knowing he's watching a special copy of E.T., and they would program these people up to a point where they would either give them a hypnotic uh, experience, or they would actually, and I I thought this kind of amusing, but he said they actually hired dwarfs and would dress them up and have a whole theater set up to be like a ship and give these people a physical experience so that even if they took them out and they got out to a, a, a psychiatrist or a hypnotist who was not even believing in this, when he would put them under, that he would get the reading back from them that they actually believed what they went under. What All they right, kind of, a, kind of a Mission Impossible sort of yeah, setup. Yeah, that's, that's true, and it's been detailed by uh, Martin Cannon, uh, the government abductions. And, uh, yeah, they do pretend they're aliens. I don't think it's the predominant form of production of uh, abductions. But, yes, the government is certainly doing that. There's a lot of research now, John, into the abduction phenomenon. A lot of the researchers have sort of left the sighting mode, and they think the way to pursue this now is through the abduction phenomenon. Do you agree with that, John? Uh, that would be hard to do, but I'm just going to sit and watch. <laughs> on the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Lear. Hi. Uh, yeah, this is Rich in Anchorage, Alaska. Hello, Rich. Um I, I guess you could call me one of them fat, dumb, and lazy Americans because I just got turned on to your program a little while ago, so I'm learning. But uh, I was wondering if you could explain to me what uh, MJ-12 actually is. All right. Well, we did earlier, but we will again, John. MJ-12 was the, the government, the secret uh, uh, reduced uh, uh, body that was put together by President Truman in 1947 to review... Uh, and decide what to do about the alien threat, if any. It was given teeth by President Eisenhower when he got in and regretted by President Eisenhower uh, when he got out. He said, beware of the military-industrial uh, complex, he sure did. which MJ-12 uh, essentially run. 
for the people who don't believe that MJ-12 exists, my source uh, for the existence of MJ-12 was Jimmy Doolittle. And since he's passed away now, uh, I don't mind saying that that was my source. He, he confirmed to me that it did exist. All right. On the wild card line, you're on the air with John Lear. Oh, good morning, Art. This is Dan the Man, KWN Live. Yes, real quick, because we're almost out of time. Okay, um, what I wanted to say was uh, that uh, Dr. Frank Stranges, have you heard of him? Sure. Okay, well, I'll try to... Uh, would you ever have him on uh, your Dreamland? No, no, I have not had him on Dreamland. Okay, uh, well, the, he would be a very interesting person to have. Um, he says that uh, one-third of the fallen angels, uh, you know, the ones that uh, came from heaven, are uh, part of uh, the uh, UFO uh, phenomenon. All right, on that note, we're going to have to close out. John, we're out of time. We've done it again. Made it all the way through. Great, uh, And, um, I, you know, as long as you are around and I'm around, John, I'm sure there'll be another show in our future. Okay, fine, anytime. And uh, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Okay, thanks, Art. John, thank you. Good night. Okay, good night. If you've missed any part of tonight's interview with John Lear on UFOs and you'd like to have a copy on tape, dial toll-free 1-800-917-4278 and ask for tape number 980115C. The cost is $33.50 for all five hours without the commercials. That number is 1-800-917-4278. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Foggy Jack Live Podcast. Please follow us on all our social medias at FoggyJack13. Also, make sure you subscribe to YouTube and to our Patreon. Hope to see you all next time down in the pumpkin patch. Thank you, goodbye, and blessed be.